CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, August 2nd is just moments away. But before we get into that, well, you know what we need to do. Like the following unions for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. Remember that time you said GD and I had the money? And the International <laughs> Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. Thank you once again to those unions for jumping on board and helping bring back the Ben Jarofsky Show. And, of course, today's program is brought to you by our good, good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Friday, August 2nd, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's another Romana Rundown with Sun-Times editor Romana Hussein. Ace Attorney Jim Coogan is back, and it's the Ben Jarofsky Show debut of teacher and Lita Buchanan. your host people he's so pumped up for Lollapalooza this weekend <laughs> it is frightening uh, <laughs> Chicago Raider columnist Ben Jarofsky uh, hello everybody Ben Jarofsky here we're calling this suckers and saps Friday and here's why well folks as you all know for the last several days well, probably a week or so I've been utterly obsessed utterly obsessed dennis with the uh, democratic debates with the ongoing presidential primary talk about it all the time talk about it the show all the time when i'm not on the show i'm talking about the potential guests about doris davenport was on this show we spent 45 minutes talking about the presidential debates yesterday on the show leah joined that conversation and then later that night i spent another 15 minutes on the phone with doris davenport he's got a problem guys <laughs> i got issues i am obsessed with the presidential debates all right and uh, I wish I could conjure up a little more some of my friends who are the I am not paying attention persuasion, but I can't do it. I'm obsessed. I'm into it. I'm just I love watching these presidential candidates try to figure out what they're going to say in such a way as to position themselves at the front of the heap, at the top of the heap so that they can make it to the next round. And then they're going to have to figure out what they're going to say because everything changes uh, when you're facing Donald Trump. Anyway, that's all my way of an introduction to say that I haven't been talking a lot about what's going on in the local scene. You know what, D? If I don't know better, I'd say that Mayor Lori Lightfoot was taking advantage of that. Oh, yeah. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Mr. Mueller. If I didn't know better, I would say that Lori Lightfoot and her aides got together and had the following conversation. This is what the aide said. Uh, hey, boss. The guy at the reader, he's not paying attention because he's talking about the presidential primary. At which point, Lori goes, good. That's my Lori life and invitation. Oh, a lot of work put into that one. <laughs> Release the TIFF report. 
And so it is, so it was, that they released the diff report the other day, Wednesday, when I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking the same thing, you oh, know? Oh, you're a sly one, Lori Lightfoot. She caught on fast, didn't she, D? Oh, he's not paying attention. I'll release the diff report. All right. Let's now back up. Number one, uh, it was all made up. I'm sure they had no such conversation because, first of all, it's not even the mayor who releases the TIF report. It's the county clerk. Why, you ask? Would the county clerk release a TIF report that tells you, the suckers and saps of the city of Chicago, how much in your property tax dollars are getting thrown away into the TIF slush funds? Oh, my God, that's a whole explanation in and of itself, but it's just all part of the process where they just want to keep you dumb, folks, okay? And by the way, you're playing along very well in the process. All right, so it was the county clerk, Clerk Yarborough, who released the uh, TIF report the other day that showed how much the people in the city of Chicago, by the way, and also people in Cook County. Oh, yeah, it's not just people in the city of Chicago who are suckers and saps on having their property tax dollars uh, diverted into slush funds. It's also a lot of the good citizens in the suburban suburban area of Cook County, like people in Oak Park. People in Oak Park think they're above it all, do you? Have you ever noticed that? I'm from Oak Park. I'm better than you. Uh, Oak Park throws their money away in the TIF deals. Evanston throws their money away in TIF. Kenilworth, one of the richest suburbs in the, the entire state, if not the country, they want to throw their money away in a TIF deal. So it's not just the city of Chicago. But anyway, that's my particular obsession. I can't uh, be obsessed about all the TIFs everywhere. It's mainly in the city of Chicago. Now, something else you should know about a TIF which you will never hear from anyone other than me. A TIF is a surcharge on the property taxes you pay, and that surcharge, that TIF tax, as I call it, goes into a slush fund controlled by the mayor. And talking about the city of Chicago here, Mayor Rahm loved it, Mayor Daley loved it. Why? Because it's money they control. The more money they control, the more power they have. It's really the only source of discretionary income that we have in the city of Chicago for economic development deals. So if you're an alderman, let's say from Ward X, I'm not going to give any numbers, and you want your little million dollar TIF handout for your little shopping mall that you want to build in your ward, the mayor will call you in and say, okay, Alderman X, I'll give you that a million dollars in TIF deals if you agree to vote for every stupid idea I have, no matter how stupid it is, including selling the parking meters. And the alderman says, anything for you, boss. And that's how it works in the city of Chicago. TIF dollars, are the, the it's the grease that oils the machine. Alderman and that's, X is an awesome rapper name, by the way. I know, it is good. It'd be a good movie too, Alderman X. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, actually, it. Ward. it was Ward X, but it could be Alderman X as well. Anyway. So that's why tips are so important. That's why mayors love them. Now, Lori Lightfoot swore up and down that she was going to reform the TIF program in the city of Chicago. She's not off to the greatest of all starts. She kind of signed on to uh, the Lincoln Yards TIF and the 78 TIF. She looked the other way as it passed, said there's nothing she could do about it. Now her lawyers are in court fighting them. So not off to the greatest start in that one. Anyway. Yeah, on Wednesday, uh, County Clerk uh, Karen Yarborough released a report, $1.25 billion in TIFs generated in Cook County and in the city of Chicago, drumroll please, $841 million in your property taxes last year were diverted into the TIFs, ladies and gentlemen, city of Chicago, taxpayers of the city of Chicago, $841 million. Now, here's the funny thing. I've been writing about this TIF scam 
for mm, many, many years, uh, obsessively writing about it since the early O's. Every time I write about it, some spokesperson from the city of Chicago is released by the mayor to say, um, it's not a tax hike. It does not raise taxes. Don't believe what the guy from the reader is saying. It's not true. That's the official line of the city of Chicago. It has been the official line for many, many years. Maybe Lori will change that line. But that's the official line of the city of Chicago. It does not raise taxes. So here's the deal, folks. If it doesn't raise taxes, must be some kind of magical way of creating $841 million last year. And here's the other sad news. Even though they swear up and down that it doesn't raise its taxes, you suckers and saps are going to have to pay it. We got a great show today, everybody. Yes, indeed. Ramana Hussein will be here. It's from Friday, so Ramana Rundown. She's got a lot to talk about, including an interesting perspective on Tulsi Gabbard. I'm going to ha- love to hear what Ramana, maybe you won't love to hear what she has to say, but uh, she has an inter- interesting perspective on Tulsi Gabbard, who is uh, very popular among uh, many of our listeners and including some of the people in the studio right now. Uh, Jim Coogan, ace attorney. Jim Coogan will be here at two o'clock, talk about all the lawsuits in the world involving Donald Trump. I don't know if we're going to have enough time, D, uh, to contain, uh, to, to, to do, get through all the lawsuits. The one in California that I find fascinating is where Democrats, follow me on this, folks, passed a bill, the governor signed into law, requiring any presidential candidate to release his or her taxes uh, if he or she wants to get on the ballot. And you know, one, uh, President Donnie John Trump is resisting releasing his taxes. So it will be interesting to see if Donald John Trump can get that uh, law overturned as uh, illegal or unconstitutional. Or will he just say, you know what? I'm just not going to run in the state of California. So we'll have uh, Jim Coogan talking about that. Uh, and Alita Buchanan will make her Ben Jarofsky show debut. We talk about education uh, in the uh, the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. She's a special ed teacher. She's got a lot of interesting thoughts and perspectives on that. And uh, plenty of political talk. Plenty of yes, yes, yes. Presidential debate and national presidential politics talks. Leah will have an update, breaking news on what's going on with uh, uh, the next debate. Uh, and uh, so plenty of political talk ahead of us before we do that. Anyway, the doctor with the news. How's it going, everybody? I'm Dennis. Never been a doctor in my life. Shout out to the YouTube live stream, by the way. Brianna, she weighs in. She says uh, she noticed... Uh, she says, I love Leah has a new hat. Yes, indeed. Yeah, she's wearing a Chicago Reader hat. I don't know if you could tell that on the on the camera, but yeah, it's a Chicago Reader hat. And then she asks a, fant- a question I've been wondering uh, since we've done this. Hey, where's the Benny J Show merch? Uh, great question. No kidding. Reader, sometimes. <laughs> a hat, a bumper sticker, <laughs> anything. Well, we got the poster, uh, but that's uh, I mean, not really merch. Oh, yeah, nobody yeah. wants that. Great question, Brianna. That's a great question. I thought so, too. I'm going to ask Brianna, uh, where's the Ben Jarofsky at? (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's the middle of the final day of the week, and today we're going to do something different. Mm. In fact, you may say we're going to do something Mm. strange. Whoa. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. You see, we typically begin this portion of the program with the national news happening, but Uh like Ben said, with it being presidential election season and all, good God, have we been national news heavy as of late guilty so today we'll try to balance that out a bit by beginning with what's going on locally yes we begin with what else is news wait i can't talk about bernie sanders i mean dude we got 
<laughs> Two and a half more hours, pal. I'm dying to talk about Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. All, all right, right but that, that time of the year has finally arrived all in right. Chicago. Mm-hmm. Four back-to-back-to-back-to-back days <laughs> of nonstop modern music madness. Why is this a thing? Uh, it's Lollapalooza weekend. <laughs> oh, and listen, guys, I'm not going to sit here and uh, let Ben go on and on about how much he loves Lollapalooza. <laughs> Trust me. That's all I've been hearing from this guy all week. Yeah. You don't want to hear it, all right? Uh-huh. No, no. I'm tying this into local politics because if you happen to be hanging out at the West Loop Thursday night and dining at Rick Bayless's Lina Bravo restaurant, you may have seen some familiar faces. For the record, I am not one of those people. In fact, I myself... I've never heard of it. Yeah, I myself uh, happened (laughs) to be dining at the Albany Park Subway last night. And a delicious Subway, that one is. Sweet onion chicken teriyaki sandwich. Watch out. I particularly love the way they toast the bread at that Subway. Yeah, Oh, the one in Albany Park? Yeah, the one right across from the Kimball Stop. Yeah, I love that Subway. I would say the same thing ever since I moved there. Uh, And the Dunkin' Donuts just down the street is particularly delicious, savory bagels. But if you were in the West Loop, you may have seen Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Lollapalooza creator Perry Farrell dining together. And Ben, I don't need to tell you that (laughs) Farrell is the former front man of the band Jane's Addiction. I know you know that. You love Lollapalooza. You love Perry Farrell. But Uh, I do need to ask you uh a few questions, all right? Okay. All right. So what do you think these two talked about, Lori Lightfoot and Perry Farrell, uh, during their late night Lala luncheon? (laughs) She loves luncheons. Uh, We know how our previous mayor felt about Lollapalooza, but how do you think Lori Lightfoot feels about Lala? Is she pro-Lala, anti-Lala? And finally, do you personally feel that there should be a bit of Lala legislation. All right. Well, let me break that down. That's a lot of questions thrown at one guy at one time. And I'm like, my first impulse is habit, a habit, a habit. It's a Lala Palooza <laughs> question. Number one, uh, Lori Lightfoot's attitude, her real attitude, as opposed to the one she expresses in Lala Palooza. I'm just going to put this out there. I think Lala, uh, Lori Lightfoot is sort of the Ben Jarofsky persuasion. Uh, her musical tastes uh, go back to groups before Lollapalooza, all right? So any any admiration she expresses for Lollapalooza is about as believable as any admiration I express toward Lollapalooza. And my attitude, Lollapalooza, is a pain in the neck that we put up with. For how many days is it? Four days? Four days. Yeah, and uh, I've if any uh, parent out there of my generation knows that there's a coming-of-age experience uh, with uh, daughters, well, sons too, but I raise daughters, where they go to Lollapalooza, and then the parents freak out uh, what is this thing huh lollapalooza my inner old man you know, what what four days of this dad leave me alone and uh so lollapalooza is kind of a pain in the neck that i put up with mark thomas uh, who ran the alley uh, one time i was critical of lollapalooza in a reader column just wrote he's so upset it brings so much money to the city of chicago it brings so much attention to the city of chicago it's such a great thing i remember mark thomas never seen him so exercised over anything so all you Lollapalooza heads, happy for you. They're You're called Lollapaloozers. Oh, okay, so that, is it really a name? I don't know. Oh, that's a good name. I'm happy for you. It's your four days. Go enjoy yourself. I'm going to stay away from it. And uh, I think Lori Lightfoot secretly agrees with me, but she can't say that, D, because, you know, officially it's like, Oh, this is Chicago in the spotlight, and it's so cool. And we're going to side a side a corner of the city for Lollapalooza. So she's going to have to pretend that she likes it. I don't think she really likes it. You know who liked Lollapalooza, and it was really the Lollapalooza mayor was Mayor Rahm. And Lollapalooza perfect for Rahm because it's not really Chicago. It's something that's brought into Chicago. Law, uh, Rahm's not really Chicago. He's somebody who was brought into Chicago. You know, it's um, he likes that. 
music, you know, Rom likes 90s music and stuff. Every now and then, isn't that, uh, oh boy, Perry from the 90s, isn't that his 90s era? That's Rom's era. You yeah, know, yeah. He likes, that's kind of his music, you know? So, you know, Rom was, uh, Mayor Daly, guarantee you, couldn't care less about Lollapalooza. It's one of the few things that Mayor Daly and I agree on. Uh, Lori Lightfoot pretends she likes it, but couldn't care less about it. Is Todd Rundgren playing at Lollapalooza, by the way? I'm looking at the lineup here. Lil Wayne. Um, <laughs> yeah, Lori's uh, a huge Lil Wayne fan. Uh, no, no. It looks like uh, yeah. Todd Rundgren is not on the lineup this year. Yeah, no. So, Lori, like, come on, Lori. Who are you kidding? You don't care about Lollapalooza. But uh, so, yeah, she went and had lunch with old Perry anyway, huh? Oh, All Mayor right. Rom, what's that? Take a chill pill, man. <laughs> chill out, dude. Yeah, Mayor Rom loves time. Lollapalooza. Oh, and, and uh, let's see here. Today, Mayor Lightfoot was at Harold Washington Library Ooh. and gave remarks at the Chicago Summer Business Institute graduation. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, was in Decatur, Illinois today. Ben, have you ever visited Decatur, Illinois? I think I've been through it. and uh, once drove through Decatur, yeah. What would you think? I mean, in one word, how do you describe Decatur, Illinois? Uh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah, that's the oh, word I would use. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know much about any part of uh, Illinois outside of the C- city of Chicago. Heidi Henry, I know you're listening out there. You're doing your best to get me to go out and see new places. And I, I really enjoy we go we take the show on the road to... Uh, McHenry County and Kane County, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I get a little uh, get a little nervous whenever I leave the city of Chicago. Oh, you should plan your next vacation in Decatur. You'll have yeah. a great time. Okay. So Pritzker was in Decatur, Illinois today. Then he's headed back north to S&C Electric Company in Chicago to sign legislation aimed at spurring business investment in Illinois by extending the R&D tax credit and creating the apprenticeship tax credit. Pritzker also signed a measure to extend the state's film tax credit Mm -hmm. to 2026. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and the one and only Tina Spondellas. This signing comes just two days after a Teamsters boss and not a nice man, John Coley, pleaded guilty in an extortion case involving cash payments that he strong-armed from the Cinespace Chicago Film Studio between the years 2014 In 2017, Coley pleaded guilty to receiving a prohibited payment as a union officer and making a false income tax return. Like I said, not a nice guy here, all right? Pritzker called the former Teamster boss, quote, a bad apple. (laughs) Saw that in my book. You know, not the rhetoric our president uses or anything, but still a bad apple, all right? And he signed the measure in Chicago alongside law and order creator and producer Dick Wolf, who shows Chicago Fire. Chicago PD and and uh, Chicago lawyers. <laughs> that, was, that was actually a good guess, but you're wrong. Chicago Med. Oh, they're all filmed at Cinespace. Good. The shows have infused big cash into the city, employed thousands of people, and have made Chicago a more competitive city when it comes to film and TV production. Ben Jarofsky, your thoughts on this and thoughts on this John Coley guy. Well, all right, let me uh, break it down here. A tax credit, folks, is um, when a company uh, gets uh, to not pay less in taxes than it would ordinarily have to pay. Uh, it's an incentive that the state gives to companies they fear. Well, in this particular case, uh, it, they create jobs in the film industry and it sort of uh, polishes the city's app. You know, it's very, it's sort of Lollapalooza-esque, okay? So Lollapalooza brings rock stars and rappers to the city of Chicago and then we get to all bask in the glory of having a rap, rap, uh, raps. By the way, speaking of rap stars in the city of Chicago, 
Who was in the hallways of oh, my beloved yeah. Bright One yesterday? That was Hanging a crazy out. day. Yeah. Uh, yesterday. Ice Cube. Ice Cube was here, and he was not talking about rap music, or not talking about movies. He was promoting his 3 3 basketball tournament, and he bumped into Doris Davenport in the hallway, and they took a picture. And somehow or other, Doris Davenport, he didn't steer him into the studio. I could have talked to Ice Cube about 3 3 basketball, something I know about. You no, know? I think she tried, and uh, his response is, who the hell's that guy? <laughs> Why would I want to go? You mean that's by the bathrooms? Why would I go back by there? <laughs> you mean by, by the emergency exit guy? Well, you're inviting me there. By the way, speaking of which, I just discovered this. Okay, we have this little studio. We like joke about this little room. It's uh, one step up from Wayne's World. They got us out by the bathrooms, <laughs> you know, in the emergency exit. You know, uh, you have to like walk. It's like a labyrinth. Walk through the hallways. Go this way. You go that way to make it there. People have been known to get lost sometimes getting here. We have to send out Saint <laughs> Bernard. Just picture an Ice Cube coming in and seeing this operation. <laughs> yeah, man. he'd be like, "What All the right?" Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, man, he would have been so welcome. I would have been unbelievable if Doris had opened up the door and I turned. To look at double, you know, Doris with her dog, Mr. Precious, and there's Ice Cube. I'm like, well, have it, have it, uh, Ice Cube uh, in the studio. I love Fridays. Anyway, um, <laughs> Friday without uh, the S. Yeah. So, uh, where was I going on this one? Oh, um, so we have this little room in the back uh, hallways, just down from the bathroom and the emergency exit sign. It turns out, folks, when we're not paying attention. There's a couple of podcasters who sneak in here and do a podcast, huh, D? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we cut a deal with them. They're going to be coming on the show. Uh, Madeline Kenny and um, uh, Annie Constable will be here. Uh, but that's a whole other thing. But, yeah, so it's a little popular room. People are doing podcasts here. Uh, anyway, so where is it going? Oh, yes. Yeah, so back to the tax credit. So in order to bask in the glory of having a TV show filmed in the city of Chicago and just, like, you know, feel that civic pride that we feel when rap come here and movie stars come here uh we the people of illinois are setting aside money uh for in tax breaks for companies that make their movies here or produce their movies here or shoot their movies here and they do it at cinespace with this which is an enormous facility on the west side of chicago and john coley who is the head of the teamsters union the local teamsters union around here was shaking down the uh, owners of cinespace for money and uh they turned uh, state's evidence against him and now uh, he's been indicted I don't believe he's been convicted of anything. I just think he's an indictment. Am I correct on that, young man? Um, That's correct. Oh, thank you, uh, Mueller. And uh, doing this off the top of my head, folks. No, no, no. But one time, I got a tour of Cinespace. Yes. They were, um, there was a publicist who will go unnamed. All right. Um, uh, and uh, he got me an opportunity to have a tour of the place. I think he thought that giving me a tour of the place would win me over and I would sing the praises of spending all that money uh, on Cinespace. It didn't really work, but I enjoyed the tour anyway. And I got to go into the room where uh, Empire is filmed, where the... the which is the dining room. And I sat in the chair where Terrence Howard sits, okay? And then they took a picture of me and I sent it to all my friends who watch Empire. And they're like, wow, man, what are you doing there? And anyway, so, you know, I think for that photo, it was worth the tax credits. Hey, it's more than I get for most of the TIF money we spend in the city of Chicago, D, all right? So anyway, folks, don't fool yourself into thinking that it's free, all right? Somebody's gonna, you pay a little more in your taxes because they're paying less. And uh, you have to decide, is this a good investment of your tax dollars? Um, I think most people in the state of Illinois would say yes. 
because it gave him the opportunity maybe to bump into somebody like Ice Cube. So there you go. That's the story of Cinespace. And finally, this news is just breaking. Now, Illinois State Senator Thomas E. Cullerton mm. has been indicted on embezzlement charges per the U.S. Attorney's Office. Cullerton. Yeah. Hey, that's a familiar last name, isn't it? No relation. Uh, you're thinking of big Johnny Cullerton, who is the state president. Uh, this is Tom Cullerton. He's a state senator. I want to say he's from the western suburbs. Don't quote me on that. Uh, and uh, this has to this has to do with uh, John Coley and the Teamsters, right? Didn't they say Cull- uh, Cullerton's records were yeah. subpoenaed as part of the investigation into that guy we were just talking about, bad apple guy, Teamsters boss John T. Coley? Here's what we know so far, thanks to the Chicago Sun Times Bulldog John Seidel. Cullerton is accused of fraudulently <laughs> receiving yeah. salary and benefits from a labor union for which he did little or no work. The indictment includes 39 counts of embezzlement from a labor union, as well as one count of conspiracy to embezzle from a union and one count of lying about a health care matter. It says Cullerton got money and a car and a telephone allowance, even though Cullerton did little or no work for the Teamsters. The indictment says Cullerton was paid a full-time salary by the Teamsters, even when Cullerton attended sessions of the Illinois State Senate. And Cullerton also got a bonus in December 2013, 14, and 15, despite doing, once again, little or no work for the Teamsters. Mm. My guess is now, it's the first time I'm hearing this story, they're squeezing him to get to somebody else. That would be my guess, all right? Uh, because uh, he doesn't seem to be the, the person who would be the top of the list, uh, the uh, top of the food chain, I should say. Anyway, by the way, uh, yeah, uh, Pritzker keeps calling him uh, a bad apple, uh, Coley, and uh, it leads me to believe, Are the, uh, is Donny Osmond going to be playing at Lollapalooza? Uh, do you know? Uh, let me look at the have, lineup. Let me look at the lineup. Lil Wayne, The Strokes. Uh, no. Has anybody in this studio ever heard of Donny Osmond? Yeah. Uh, you, Leah, have you? <laughs> you've seriously heard My of My mom th- loved Donny Osmond. Okay. <laughs> God bless your mom. Uh, guarantee you, and I'm going to put this out there, Lori Lightfoot likes Donny Osmond more than she likes Anybody who's currently playing at Lollapalooza. And why did I say uh, Donny Osmond? That was my next question. Because I believe, don't quote me on this young man, I believe that Donny Osmond had a hit single back in the 60s called One Bad Apple. Would you like me to sing that song? (laughs) One bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch, girl. And that's when Donny Osmond was imitating Michael Jackson. Did you know there was a phase of his career where he was imitating Michael Jackson? Oh, no, no. Please, keep going. Keep going. I'm telling you what, if Lori Lightfoot were here in the studio, she would be totally engaged with me in this conversation. Whereas when she was sitting with old boy from Jane Addiction, who made a fortune out of Lollapalooza, and he was going, yes. I love my album, Jane's Addiction. She was like, huh, never heard of it. You made uh, Perry Farrell sound British. (laughs) (laughs) From America, dude. Oh, don't act like you know Perry Farrell. Oh, absolutely, I do. I love Jane's Addiction. Is it Jane's Addiction? Jane's Addiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you like better, Jane's Addiction or Friday? The The movie. movie. Oh, Friday the movie. Absolutely. Come on, man. There's no question. All right. Well, this is too fun for uh, 10 trivia points. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I mentioned Uh this to you on the phone before the show. Let's see if you can remember. Jane's Addiction. Perry Farrell was in that band. And at one time, a very famous bass player named Flea was Uh, in Jane's Addiction. You told me this already, but I didn't know it when you told me. What band? Uh, Flea Bag. It's a TV show. What band was Flea in? Uh, He was in. You told me this. Um, I knew he'd forget. Oh, man. Uh... 
Do you know that one, Leah? Yeah, I All do. right, let's see it. Let's watch Ben now. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I could see it. The guy like always had a sleeveless t shirt uh shirt and he, he, he had muscles. Oh yeah. He, Bands he, with uh sleeveless t shirts and, and muscles. He had like the a field. leather strap around him. Uh, and oh, the guys at the bowling alley, the guys from the 90s, and oh, Ben, you don't like this group? This group's fantastic. Guys from the 90s and their music. I forget the name of them. What's the name of the group? It's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, Red Hot Chili Absolutely. Peppers. Absolutely. And the guys at the bowling alley, oh, Ben, you don't like the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Sorry, man. I like Donny Osmond more than the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Please Paper hang tight with us, Millennials. You like Maria Paper Osmond? Roses. That's a song by Maria Osmond. Yeah, catch him at Lollapalooza <laughs> this weekend, guys. All four nights he's going to be there. He's going to be the guy with his lighter. Guarantee you, folks, I will guarantee you, Lori Lightfoot likes Maria Osmond more than she likes the Red Hot Chili Peppers. All right, so before we uh, take a break here, anything else you'd like to say about the stories we covered here? We talked about, uh, or your opening on, on TIFFs, Pritzker, uh, Lollapalooza, Cinespace. I will be uh, taking the deep dive into the TIFF. You know I am not going to be able to resist this. Uh, the TIFF tally for the city of Chicago, you suckers and saps in the city, eight. $141 million uh, last year, 2008. That's how much extra you had to pay in taxes for your little tiffs <laughs> that the city has told you are not tax hikes. And you have believed the city for all these years, Chicago. And I've defended you, Chicago. I defend you all the time. Mayor Daly and Mayor Rob's operatives think you're dumb and you're suckers and saps. And I say, no, you're not dumb. And so you're going to prove to me that you're smart, you're going to uh, demand Mayor Lori Lightfoot end this scam and uh, have the city accountable for the $841 million you're spending. You're going to prove me right there that you're not a bunch of suckers and saps, D, all right? You're bossy today. All right, if, oh, well, let's leave the uh, YouTube live stream chat before we uh, move on here. Johnny Joe says, uh, I could see Ben at Lollapalooza with a <laughs> megaphone yelling at the crowd, don't take the brown acid. He says that's a Woodstock reference. Uh, do, hey, I know it's... By the way, it's also a reference. I'm not going to give away anything to the movie I'm obsessed with, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you see that movie, there's a little LSD thing going on in that movie. That's all I'm saying. He loves that movie. And Pat Rod weighs in, says, Jane's addiction is awesome. Listen to Mountain Song. Okay. I'll listen to Mountain Song. Write it down. All right. I'm going to write it down right now. All right. Write it down. Mountain there Song. There we go. We got time. There's a song called Mountain Jam by the Almond Brothers. Well, okay. Well, we'll get over that. Right. You got to listen to this Jane's Addiction. And then uh, Pat Rod also says, by the way, did Ben ever listen to Nirvana's Drain You? Remember? Who oh, said you're going to no, do that? I'm going to do that. I'm going to write that. Things to do this weekend. Nirvana's Drain I'm going to listen to it this weekend. All yes, right. indeed. We'll get your overall review on it on Tuesday. All right. But just like in. that, you're now in the know of what's going on locally. And now you will have an answer the next time someone asks you, hey, what else is news? Yeah, let me tell you something. Jane's Addiction. Nirvana. And Donny Osmond all agree. You did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of cash. Petty cash. Ramona's here. She can't wait to take that <laughs> deep dive. Oh, man. Tulsi Gabbard. You're going to love to hear what Ramona has to say about her. Or maybe you won't. We'll be right back after this. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. 
The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by the Northwestern Summer Writers Conference. Now in its 15th year, the three-day conference held in Chicago features a diverse array of workshops, speakers, discussions, and readings. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash writers. Hey, playing now at Steppenwolf Theater, the world premiere of Ms. Black for President. It's inspired by the true, that's true as in it really happened, T-R-U-E story of Joan Dett Black, America's first drag queen presidential candidate. You know who created it, D? No. It was created by Tony nominee Tina Landau. Oh. And you know who else created it? No. Oscar winner Terrell Alvin McCraney. You know him, Moonlight. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. For tickets, visit Steppenwolf.org. That's Steppenwolf, like the rock group from the 60s, Hang tight, millennials. <laughs> Today's Ben Jaromsky show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Get to know your city on one of Chicago Architecture Center's 65 walking tours. Hear the unforgettable secrets and stories behind Chicago architecture from our expert docents. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a tour right now. Oh, wow. Look at that building. Get a special discount for Illinois residents from July 15th to August 15th. All Illinois residents get 50% off select walking tours. Visit architecture.org slash IL dash resident. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, indeed. We are live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Ramana Hussein has joined us. We're going to get into Tulsi Gabbard uh, in a little while. But before I do that, uh, any Lollapalooza? Uh, you gonna, are you going to be going to Lollapalooza? It's kind of your generation. You're, you, know, uh, you know what? Actually, Lollapalooza, the first one did start when I was in college, 1991. I had friends. And it was a traveling concert then. It'd be an all-day event, kind of like a farm aid. And then it'd go to different states. So one of my friends, one of my really, really good friends, I remember that summer... My cousin went to India and she was all into those bands and she was bummed because she went, she went to India with her family. I remember her asking me like, how was it? And then another friend of mine who I'm really good friends with, she also, I mean, I was just talking to this friend yesterday. She went and she told me it was, it was awesome. Uh, But I did go to Lollapalooza years later um, because my niece, when she turned 16, she wanted to go for her 16th birthday and my older sister didn't want her to go alone. Yeah, (laughs) She wanted to see Lady Gaga and a few other bands. And I remember, so um, my sisters told me and my younger sister, she's like, I just feel more comfortable if you guys kind of took her. And so I did. I actually stood in the crowd for two hours before Lady Gaga wow. showed up, just so my niece could see her a little closer. And then for, so for the next four or five years, we'd go together. And uh, we, she kind of made it into a tradition. At some point she, when she got into college, she was like, well, why don't we split off? And um, I told her, if I see you doing anything that I know your mom would not want you to do, I'm not your friend. <laughs> Even Ooh. though I'm the nice aunt, I'm like, I will tell. <laughs> the nice aunt suddenly turns into a so, narc. <laughs> no, but I, I, I mean, and then at, at some point, when, nice at some point when we, when she was yeah. in college, I felt so old because every other person she knew at the show and she, and then at some point she'd be like, okay, I'm not going over there. Those are some frat boys that I can't stand over there. I have to talk to them if yeah. I go. And then, and then every time we'd just be walking, she'd just be saying hi to everybody. She goes, oh, everybody from Niles North and Niles West goes, go to these things. And I remember giving one of her friends a ride after the show, she bumped into them and 
so it kind of got funny and then i used to take my and then her brother who's now 18 he was a little kid and he was really into a lot of those bands so we used to take him he used to be able to go free for a while because uh kids under 12 are free wow i didn't know that yeah because they have a lot of stuff for kids but he didn't he wasn't into kid stuff i remember one year he wanted to see green day so we took him to that and then at I think when he was like, and then he, he, he even felt like he was too old. I think 2013, he was maybe 13 years old. And he's like, yeah, I'm over Lollapalooza. He probably wouldn't go now. And yeah, no, I, uh, Lollapalooza, like I said, uh, it's a phase of life. And uh, <laughs> I remember when my kids were doing it, the last thing in the world they would want would be me to go with them. There was like a whole pack of Some them. people, there was families who would take their kids. Well, and I know that was not my family. That's for <laughs> sure. And uh, when, when they got old enough to go to Lollapalooza, I was like, dad, uh, uh, we're going to Lollapalooza. And there was no nice aunt to go with them. They just went with them. I don't even want to know what they did. All right, let's uh, get down to business here. We have a whole uh, list of things to talk about, Romana. And at the top of the list, Tulsi Gabbard. And uh, the last time uh, you were in the studio and her name came up, it was very at the end of the show. And um, I made a mental note. Uh, to take a little deeper dive and for you to express some of your concerns about her. And let's uh, just Yeah, I'll, I'll express concerns from people of my ilk. But before I do, let me just say this. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, for uh, people who may not know this, because she's not one of the like best-known candidates, is a congresswoman. She was Hawaii. the most Googled I, I read after the debates this week. Uh, yeah, and she was really popular after the first debate with uh, Republicans. But anyway, she's a congresswoman from Hawaii. She's running for president as a Democrat. And she had a, a few very uh, bold moments uh, in this week's debates where she made a strong stance against militarization, against war. And she uh, cited as uh, like one of the motivating factors in her thoughts the fact that she served, she was... Um, what, was she, which branch of the military was I she in? I think the army. The army. And she, she was a Iraq war veteran, yeah. I believe. So anyway, and uh, she, she was praised in the show by a number of people who came through these studios. And for a different point of view, we now turn to Ramana. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, if you talk to people who actually pay attention to world politics, um, a lot of people, especially Muslims, Indian Muslims, do not like her. Um, her her name actually is means holy basil in Sanskrit. Sanskrit. Um, Tulsi, that's how we would pronounce it. Um, she is actually part Asian. She is Samoan and she was raised as a Hindu. So I know a lot of Indian Americans are interested in her. Um, so <laughs> India is a very diverse country, as you know, and uh, the majority of India is Hindu. Um, then there's many other religions. Uh, Muslims are the largest minority in India. I think the last time I read, maybe like 12 to 18 percent it might be 20 percent at this point there's 1 billion people in india there's a large christian population there's there's six sikhs um there's also there's also different there's also jewish indians it's a very small population but so there's many different religions but indians there's a lot of hindus and then there's a lot of muslims and the friction between the two groups um it comes up every once in a while that doesn't mean that people aren't friends and people don't get along, but they're definitely right now in India. I don't know if you knew the Narendra Modi mm -hmm. is the president of India and a lot of Indian Muslims look at him like Trump and, and a lot of, a lot of Hindus in India see him. A lot of the left leaning Hindus don't like him either. Um, he was the, um, I think the minister in Gujarat, when the Gujarat train riots happened, I want to say the Talk early. Talk about that, 2000s. It was 2000s. There was a lot of Muslims two, killed. Say, there yeah. was communal tension. And it actually started with, I think there was some Muslims had killed some Hindus on a train. 
and then it just escalated. And he kind of, from a lot of the way the Muslim people saw it, is he was to blame because a lot of a lot of people were killing Muslims in retaliation, and there was no stopping of that. And a lot of people said the police were just kind of looking the other way when then there was a lot of massacres happening. Now, um, I was going to tell you when I was talking about. Um, when I'm going to talk about Dulce Gabbard, she, um, I'm quoting an Indian woman who wrote a piece in The Week, which is a weekly magazine. And this woman is, just to let you know, she is not of Muslim descent. Her name is Shika Balmia, and she's probably... Hindu, I think. She, that, it sounds like Hindu name, but it's yeah. a, I read her bio. She's a, She said she was a Buddhist. Okay. Or an agnostic Buddhist. That's what it said. But the name definitely is not... Muslim. So for anybody who thinks that I'm just, I'm just saying what, you know, and she kind of laid out and, and the headline in this article is Tulsi Gabbard is no peacenik. Yeah. And it talks about the three different, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who do know about her, what their problems are with Tulsi Gabbard, because she's okay. First of all, she's cozied up to Bashar Assad, who, in Syria. yeah, in Syria, Assad is how most Americans pronounce it um, when you're, when you're Muslim, you pronounce it Assad. And she basically is the first American politician to go to visit Syria, stand with him after he gassed his own people. And then she went to Egypt, maybe two years before that, mm -hmm. and she met with Sisi, who had just killed a lot of people in the, you know, he was, I'm not him personally, not but, him, yeah. but mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of deaths in the Arab Spring movement, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of people blamed him for that. And so the third, which a lot of Indian people are paying attention, is her relationship to Modi. Yeah. So she's kind of cozied up to him, she's gotten his support, and so for a lot of Indians who don't like Modi, they feel like she's cozying up these dictators and especially a lot of Indians, yeah. especially a lot of Muslims. And there's a lot of Hindus and there's a lot of other Indians who don't agree with that. Yeah. And so, I mean, she has support, but we've read, you know, we've been reading about her for a long time. You know, the name Dulce, which is kind of funny, is like, as soon as I heard that name, I'm like, she Indian? And then I looked up you know, different well, things. It's there, there's worlds that exist out the outside of the worlds that we know. All right. So I was just joking about like the world of Lollapalooza that I know nothing about, yeah. but that people are obviously a lot, millions of people know it. And you're talking about uh, India, uh, which is one of the, the largest countries in the world yeah. in terms of population. And most Americans don't know what's going on in India, don't yeah. know the factions, don't know that the religious divisions. And so Tulsi Gabbard comes along and she has these connections uh, to Modi in India that doesn't do Democratic voters capital D Democratic voters yeah. know nothing about that. And every time I've had um, a guest on who's Muslim and, and her name comes up and we've never really taken a deep dive on this one, Romana. It's just like, <laughs> as we're going to break, oh, you don't like her, do you? <laughs> and I can name all the people. I won't name them all, but trust me, you know a couple of them or one of them. You don't know the other one. And and I did. I've done the research. I've done the reading on her, and you're absolutely correct. These yeah, are and the thing troubling is, uh, issues that she does not have to deal with because no one ever asks her about. Well, it. the thing is also well, a, a lot of um, a lot of people who are paid to pay attention to foreign policy in the United States. I mean, I grew up in a house, uh, you know, child of immigrants. My dad's Muslim. I mean, my parents are Muslim. And my dad, I'm Muslim, and so you know, my dad would always tell us like. It's not black and white. A lot of things, and I think a lot of people, you know, they 
don't really know when there's persecutions against Muslims, it's not really a big headline. And if you read stuff that's going on in India right now, um, so one of the things that I, my husband is a vegetarian, you know, people see us together, Mick Dumkey. <laughs> I um, forget that he's so, a vegetarian. <laughs> so people always see us together and they're always like, oh, they look at me and they go, you must be vegetarian. And then I'm like, no, actually, he's a vegetarian. Yeah. Um, Muslims like meat. <laughs> That's one of the things. Um, and so, was um, there meat at your wedding? I just can't remember. Yeah, we had a we had a vegan and vegetarian table. <laughs> okay, for Mick, <laughs> uh, I don't eat meat. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, my sister in law is a vegan. She doesn't eat any dairy products or eggs. Yes, I know that. So yes, uh, it can get complicated. So yeah. you know, it's it's really funny. So like, I they I, assume you're the vegetarian. I assume they, they assume give me, I'm like the bacon. Do you know anything about Muslims? We love meat, and especially Indian Muslims. Right? Oh, we love meat. But in, in India, there's a lot of country, uh, a lot of states that ban the eating of beef. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are using that as a reason to kill Muslims, or if they don't chant certain Hindu chants, they're killed. Also, um, housing discrimination in India. To code the code word is they're beef eaters. And so there's a lot of housing discrimination against Muslims. So when you hear about inequality, those inequalities are there in India. Not to say like, you know, my my um, uncle, my, one of my favorite uncles, he's very politically active. All his best friends are Hindu. My mother grew up in um, Hindu Muslim city. So, you know, people get along. It's not that. But, you know, it can get tense mm-hmm. when things happen. I went to India in 1993, when I was in college, right after the Barbary Mosque destruction, mm-hmm. that was also, uh, there was an argument that that was a Hindu holy place and then the mosque was destroyed and there was a lot of tension going on when I went to India. Then then there was the Mumbai terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was telling my husband, I, go, I always end up going to India right when after something crazy yeah. happened. So I went to India after that. So I saw some of that and I, I've had anti-Muslim things said to me when I was in India because people didn't realize I was a Muslim. And so it, it's it's been very interesting. The most anti-Muslim sentiment I've felt or I've heard people say was actually in India. And that's where my parents are from. So, you know, I and they that's just the, said it, assuming, assuming you were Hindu. A lot of people, you know, the stereotypes that are of um, African-Americans are also the stereotypes of Muslims in India. The stereotype is of Muslims that were not educated. So if I was with a group of educated people, they just assumed I was a Muslim and they'd start with anti-Muslim, um, say stuff about Muslims. So and what, what do you say? Do you just ignore it? Or? I say I'm a Muslim. I went to India with a bunch of journalists in 2006 as part of a fellowship. And I was... I wasn't, I, we landed in one part of India and we were going to go visit with a prince the next day. And he was one of the last princes of Muslim descent. And we were with a journalist who wasn't Muslim and, you know, he was in a, in the airport, it was like 2 AM. And then he was telling our, our group leader, he's like, oh, you know, we're going to meet this prince. He's a Muslim descent. And he's like, he's not like the other Muslims. And I was like half asleep, so I didn't really say anything. And the next day, like we all introduced ourselves to this guy who was a prince, who, by the way, had the had a title card somewhere that said prince. So we kind of laughed about that because I was thinking the singer prince. Yeah. But I remember we all introduced ourselves. And then, you know, I said my name, Ramana Hussein. And um, anybody who's kind of grown up in India, we know the differences when we just hear the names. We know, like you might not know what an Arabic name is, like Dulcy, as soon as I know that, and we're going to talk about Kamala Harris. Yes, we will talk about Kamala Harris. That's very interesting too, because I was like, 
you know, usually when there's someone black in the United States and they have a lot of Muslim names, I've never had seen any, you know, person that was black that had Hindu names. So, so as soon as I heard that name, I'm like, she must be part Indian. Yeah. So um, I remember the guy, then the journalist looked at me because he like, you could see that he was like totally embarrassed and he was nice to me the rest of the trip. But, you know, yeah. he said, so if they, and I've had, the last time I went to India, the, my cab driver um, was telling, was showing me the different temples. He showed me Hindu temple and then he showed me, a, I went shopping and he was my driver and he showed me a Sikh temple. He was sick, yeah. sick. And then uh, Sikh, Sikh, I think it's pronounced Sikh. That's what someone told me recently. Um, just to show you that Muslims just know about, you know, we, I'm an expert on, you know, Muslims better know about everything every Indian religion. But I remember he, you know, it was our holiday where we, you know, we celebrate how um, Abraham, we call him Abraham, sacrificed, um, almost sacrificed his son and ended up sacrificing an animal. So we kill goats. And so he was like showing me, he's like, and that's, and then there's like all these goats tied up because before uh, Muslim, that Muslim holiday, it's called um, Eid al-Adha. He's like, now that's where the disgusting Muslims have, you know, he's like, and then he's talking about how disgusting Muslims were. And then he was just going on and on and on. And I go, I can talk, I can talk Hindi and Urdu. So I was like, I was like, I was like telling him really politely. I'm like, I'm Muslim. And he just kept going. I don't think he heard me say it. And then finally, I think he heard me finally say it the third time. And then he turned around and looked at me and he's like, oh, but you're not like the others. And I don't know what that meant. It was just, um, so I've had I've had a lot of anti-Muslim things said when people didn't think I was a Muslim. So well, uh, in India, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that it, it, I've had anti-Muslim things happen to me when I write when I write things. It's yeah. it's a little different in the United States. People send me mean emails, but so I'm just saying as a, as a Muslim who has of Indian descent who has paid attention to politics in India, it's it's a very concerning. And she's never been called upon it, uh, called on it. She she actually, um, I'm talking about in the debates. And so, and because she's considered one of the more, um, obscure candidates. So she's on the fringe. She, uh, it's uh, questionable whether she'll make the next round in September. Yeah. And uh, she hasn't reached the thresholds that she needs in public opinion polls or fundraising. And you know, Modi was actually not allowed to come into the United States until Trump became president. And there was a resolution in 2002 that she refused to sign Mm -hmm. and which basically said that, you know, there have been anti-Muslim policies in India and she's like, Oh, we don't know everything about it. So that's why I'll just put it this way. She, her father, who was a politician in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. uh, had extreme views about gays, anti-gay homophobic views, gay therapy, gay therapy to conversion conversion. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And she signed on to that at a young age and she has since, I'm going to give her credit. She's denounced those views and says she's changed her mind and she's moved on from that and she's apologized. But what I have not, this is the point I was about to make. What I have not seen her do with the, the same amount of energy, uh, and, um, uh, is openness is talk about her attitudes toward Modi, talk about her attitudes toward Assad and talk about her attitudes toward the relations between Hindus and Muslims uh, in India. I've not seen that now. And that's why a lot of Muslims are wary because they've said, you know, cause she, when Barack Obama was talking about terrorism once, I mm-hmm. think he, I think he just said terrorism and she goes, why don't you call it Islamic terrorism? So a lot of people feel like there's Islamophobia uh, yeah, so these are things she's going to have to deal with. And that said, I stand by what I say. <laughs> Her forceful denunciation of foreign policy, uh, for the I found very refreshing when I heard it at 
both debates, not just uh, this last debate where she was very strong, but the, the previous debate, I forget which politician she directly confronted. Somebody said something, which I thought. Was it uh, Kamala? Was it Harris? No. I, she went after her. I know that. She went after her. And she apologized about, her. Oh, she, but, okay. I didn't know she apologized. No, the first debate, she went after somebody on the issue of war. She went after Kamala Harris uh, in the last debate on the issue of, as a prosecutor, yeah. she threw people in the jail for smoking marijuana. Yeah. Something that you and your, uh, myself and your husband were cheering up. Well, your husband doesn't watch the debates, but he would have been had he been watching the debates uh, because I thought that was a very forceful uh, and appropriate uh you know, at, attack on Kamala. And it was, yeah, but it's too bad. Uh, Harris didn't come back with, Oh, you're okay with the slaughter of certain people because of their religion. But that's what I'm saying. A lot of people don't look at Muslims as victims. That's just the fact. Well, let's, I that know, is a and, very interesting point. Now we, yesterday, one of the things, uh, who is it? Uh, Doris Davenport was saying that she was very disappointed with Kamala Harris because she didn't do that. She didn't do, in other words, uh, Doris is a political strategist, and she said every single candidate on that stage uh, has been equipped with uh, talking points about what the weakness of every other candidate is. So let's say you're debating Leah, and Leah criticizes you because of your stance on property taxes uh, in 2008, and you know that Leah voted for a property tax hike because you're opposition. Re- oh, that's funny coming from you, Leah. You yeah. voted for the property. And and then that way you can deflect answering the criticism and you put it on her. But Kamala Harris did not do that when she was attacked by, uh, I, I don't know, why do you think? Because why didn't you think she went there? I, maybe she didn't think about it. You know, I, I think, you know, I follow a lot of people on Twitter who do call out Tulsi Gabbard. And, you know, maybe I just follow people who actually pay attention to that part. Maybe it's, uh, it's, part of her legacy that people don't really talk about or don't really know about because mm-hmm. most of the people who do write about this are, are south people who are south asian or people who are of muslim descent or people who are paying attention i have i have a friend who's part syrian and part mexican so you know i you know as as someone who has friends from different backgrounds i'm paying attention to what people are talking about. So maybe it's just something that's like a blip that nobody really pays attention to. Yeah. But, but it's a very sensitive subject, obviously, to a lot of a lot of Muslims yeah. and a lot of people in India as well. And yeah, maybe she wouldn't want to bring it up uh, Kamala Harris in the middle of a Ex- debate. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. And then uh, she'd have to talk about her in <laughs> Indian background. Well, we're going to get so. into that. But I also have to say there was uh, a very interesting article by uh, Noah Berletsky about Marion Williamson uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> some of her self-help ideology. Oh, my God. Uh, and he took the deep dive. And I urge again, these are fringe candidates. And I believe that both uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Marianne Williamson have brought positive things to these debates. They've said things uh, at I the debate, just saying stuff. Oh, let's love one another. That's very easy to say. That's all I'm saying. I mean, when you're I think a lot of people, especially people of color, are just offended by her. Oh, my God. Just her, they feel her. like, oh, oh, you want to wish detention away or like, you know, you can't. Her la- in the last debate, her 40 acres and a mule. uh line that whole riff she went on about uh, reparations i thought was very forceful and very on target and then her second one when she talked about the flint water crisis how it wouldn't happen uh in what's, what was the town she lived in i forget the town she lived in in uh michigan i thought she was right on but noah berletsky's so once again this guy took the deep dive and said well here's her past yeah i saw he, that yeah. i saw i saw the headline for their article I, you know i'm not saying she can't be a smart person but i'm just saying it's very interesting how this woman all of a sudden she's in center stage and you know it's 
it's just really bizarre. I just uh, everything's bizarre. Look who the president is. Yeah, that's and you I know, and, and, bizarre, and then you know, actually. and then you like you know, yeah. I couldn't even run for president because I'm a Muslim. And but although all these other kooks can go out there and just be like, oh, I want to be president. Let's love one another. Who would get so, elected first, uh, a Muslim American or a Jewish guy, uh, or an atheist? I think uh, I, I think a Muslim would because yeah. I think uh, I think they did a poll once and and everybody was like I remember everybody in the newsroom they're like oh people would rather vote for a Muslim, Muslim than, than an atheist. atheist. By the way, speaking of so. Jewish Americans running for president, uh, <laughs> I, I know we want to talk about Kamala, but I, I I told you about this, this was hilarious. <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, who I thought did a great job in the last debate, I think that was pretty much the consensus among most people came. Uh, very forceful on the issue of health care and unapologetically forceful on it and i along with elizabeth warren gotta give her a shout out as well and uh but he was loud yeah he was yelling and people were criticizing him and that i'm not a, a person of the a twitter persuasion but people but beth blackson if you're listening out there she was so kind she sent me an article where they uh, put together all the responses and uh, jewish americans throughout the country are coming to bernie's defense anybody who knows uh, been hanging around jewish people i'm not speaking in great stereotypes here now indians too yeah in, man jewish people there's a lot of Talk loud, okay? And black people too. As a guy who spent a lot of time with black people and Jews, put them together. They're loud, all right. Well, and, it's funny uh, you say that. Birdie. God bless them. I because love them. Uh, you know, I'm I'm Indian, and uh, when my husband sees us all talking, he goes, "Because I'll talk at the same time." And uh, it turns out, <laughs> True, just like and we Jews. all start yelling and screaming, and that's yeah. just a normal conversation. But I found out that it's just maybe my family members. Or well, and so the region I come from, for some reason, there's not that many of there. My parents come from a, from a state called Bihar, yeah. and uh, there's a we have a few family friends who are from Bihar, and we're all loud. So all the other Indian family friends we have, they're like. We think it's that state, and we all talk loud, and we talk over one another. And it's funny you say that because. Mick, my husband, also says that I talk louder when I'm talking in Urdu with my mom. He says, I can hear you like downstairs while I'm doing laundry. When you're talking to your mom, your voice gets louder and louder. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I understand the loud thing. Loud, I, yeah. We, and, was, and we don't think it's offensive. We just like all talk. It might sound offensive to other people, but that's how we talk. Yeah. We all like, yeah. Well, and uh, so Bernie uh, shares that, <laughs> and I love it for it. Uh, Dennis does a great Bernie imitation, and it's always loud imitation uh, when, when he does it. And, uh, so I love Bernie very much on many levels, but one of them is he's not afraid to be who he is, yeah. and that's who he's been since he was a little yeah. boy, and God bless and him. And you know, a lot of Muslim Americans that I know love him. You know, his campaign manager is a Muslim yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, this is something guy. about it's Bernie Sanders that uh, uh, struck me, and we're on a tangent, because I really want to get to Kamala. If we don't do that, we'll get to next time. <laughs> we can talk to her uh, for two minutes. Yeah, because Kamala Harris is not going anywhere. Her campaign, I, she will, I think, be one of the, the three finalists. But uh, Agree. Uh, when Bernie Sanders first ran, I, like, I would have these conversations with other Jews, and we'd be like, I don't think... Christians are going to vote for this guy, you know. I mean, Muslims yeah, would. Yeah, my, yeah. I don't just don't think it. And then I saw that support he got. I, on some levels, I found that incredibly encouraging. Well, they, they probably felt like one of their own was being attacked. You know, maybe they wouldn't vote for him, but they're just like, oh, don't rip on him for that reason. Right? No, I'm saying I, when oh, I like, saw the know, support like, that oh, support, non-Jews yeah. oh, gave, non yeah, 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 Bernie oh, yeah. Sanders, it was like, wow, you know, and okay, <laughs> and I felt like Sally Fields in the Oscars. You like me? You like me? Anyway, um, uh, all right, Kamala Harris. We're we're almost at the end here. And you know, her real name is pronounced Gumla. 
Oh man, it's a Sanskrit name. Uh, it I means lotus flower. No, but right. she doesn't. She pronounced it Kamala too. Because actually, doesn't she pronounce it Kamala? It, I Kamala? thought it was. Uh, it's Kamala. Kamala. Is that how she pronounces it? I just say uh, Kamala. Kamala. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she, you know, it's Kamala. So when when I once said Kamala to one of my Indian friends who actually went to the Jane's Addiction concert when we were talking. She told me, she goes, why are you pronouncing it like that? You're Indian. She's like, it's Gumla. And I'm like, that's how everybody's pronouncing it. So it means uh, it's uh, Lotus Flower. And her middle name is Devi, which means goddess yeah. in Hindi. So talk about her, uh, her background. So she is part South Asian mm-hmm. and part Jamaican. And the funny, like I was saying, usually, because, you know, one thing people forget is that African-Americans are probably the largest Muslim population in, you know, they represent the largest Muslim population in the United States. People usually think of Muslims, they think of immigrants. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, when people are black, they have a lot of Muslim names, sounding names. When Barack Obama was running, <laughs> I thought he was Muslim. Yeah. And he definitely has Muslim father figures, but he's not a Muslim. Yeah. But Barack is an Arabic name. When we celebrate our holidays, we say Eid Mubarak, which means blessings. So, and that's what his name means. His middle name is Hussein, like my last name. So when I heard her name, I was like, she's got to be part Indian because I've never seen a black person with a Hindu name. And so her mom was a breast cancer specialist and her father was a professor at Stanford. And I guess when they both were getting their master's at Berkeley, they were also both civil rights, rights activists, which is very interesting. So um, they got married, they got divorced, but she was raised mostly by her mother, who's South Asian. Yeah, and... uh, I think she's estranged from her father, actually. Yes, she is. And it's very interesting because when you get to uh, America and you deal with issues of ethnicity, people want to put you in a box. Yeah. And they want to say, you're this or you're that. Uh, And we've had some people, I will, uh, come on this show and have been critical about uh, Kamala Harris. And they say, uh, they have actually said things along the lines uh, that she's not really African-American. Uh, because yeah, because her, her father was Jamaican. Yeah. So that's and, why I, I was hesitant when I say, I don't want to say African-American, I'm saying black. Yeah. And uh, she actually calls herself black. She doesn't call herself African-American. So she's sensitive yeah. to that issue as well. I think it's overplay, but that's just me talking. And uh I also think that um, she will be one of the three finalists. That's where I am right now. I agree. Now. Um, and so and I was, I always talk about drinking the Kamala Kool Aid. I really uh, was riding high on Kamala until this last debate. Where are you on the Kamala? I- I can't, I mean, I'm never going to say who I'm going to vote for. I I think she's a pretty strong candidate. Um, I know a lot of people feel like her, her role as a prosecutor, I think that always comes out. And from what I understand, I admit, I did not see the debates because I just feel like there's too many candidates right now. You've been hanging around that husband of yours too long. No, I was actually out doing some, uh, working out or something, but. um, We can work out while watching the debate. I watch like Orange is the New Black or. <laughs> taking, I watch something fun. I just uh, feel you like watch a movie about a show about prisons. It's, it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's okay. really good. That's what I'm watching right now. But anyway, um, no, I I was taking class, so I wasn't watching anything. But um, I think she's she's a definitely a strong candidate. She, but I heard that she didn't do that well. Yeah, she, she was a she was a well. quote unquote loser. Oh my god, she did not. We talked about that a lot. We won't. Uh, and she did not do well. And uh, when Tulsi hit her with the one-two punch on uh, her attitudes toward uh, marijuana, throwing uh, uh, people in prison for uh, smoking marijuana or possessing marijuana. And then she said that she was like joking about yes. it when she and was I, asked about her. She's going to have to figure out how to come up with an answer to that. Yeah. She didn't have, and she also is very weak on health care. Yeah. Uh, and she's, she's been, call, I mean, I 
by the way, healthcare. <laughs> healthcare. Yeah, we, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that. No, but we have to promote a certain oh, something. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, first Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday, <laughs> with my beloved Mick Dumkey and Romana's <laughs> beloved Mick Dumkey uh, at the Hideout 1354 West Wabansia. Mick and I will be discussing healthcare uh, in the political uh, situation that we're at right now as the Democrats try to figure out a nominee, and uh, Dan Weissman will be there, and um, somebody else, another guest who I can't remember at the moment. We'll be talking healthcare, 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 and politics. Wait, Dan Weissman, host of an arm and a leg podcast? Yes. The very one. Wow. Yeah, I know. Very good, by the way, who was interviewed on the Ben Jarofsky show, and you can listen to it as a bonus segment, but not now, because I'm talking to Romana. Anyway, Romana, I had to uh, go on that tangent. Are, are there any, I know you're not allowed to endorse a candidate, but are there any candidates in particular? Well, I, I do think uh, Kamala Harris is going to be one of the front runners. I think Joe Biden will be as well. I don't know how far Bernie Sanders will get, but it'll be interesting to see because I, I, I never know with him. I think I don't do. Th- I heard Cory Booker did pretty well in this debate, but I don't think he's going to go anywhere. I don't think um, Beto is going to go anywhere. No, he may be a VP. All right. Now uh, we've come to the egg <laughs> segment. Uh, it, it, I got to ask you your recommendations, Romana recommendations. I, I still have to see your recommendation, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, now I'm focusing on my show, shows because Netflix has kind of thrown out all their new shows right now, okay. like their their new seasons. Um, Dear White People is back on. They threw all the episodes. Have you watched that show? Uh, I've only watched a couple. Of, <laughs> a, a friend of my oldest daughter is uh, in that show. She's Ooh. an actress, Courtney. Okay, and, uh, I gotta look her up. Yeah, now. and uh, she's um, she's a star. Courtney uh, is. What's her last name? Uh, I can't remember her last name at the very moment. Uh, I can look it up on my um, Instagram, I'm but anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, so she's in that show, and I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say I haven't watched it. So Courtney. yeah, really there, season three is coming, and I'll probably have to watch it with my husband because he watches that. So that I don't know how what pace we'll go at, but I, I am watching Oranges. <laughs> I am watching Oranges and New Black right now. Uh-huh. But I've been I a lot of people kind of left the show in the middle, but it's actually a very good show. Um, it started off focusing on one character and then it started focusing on all these people. The season actually is focusing on the ice situation oh, and okay. deportation. So they do t- t- touch this a lot is, of, uh, um, is New Black. yeah. And then there's this other show, which Maureen O'Donnell, the obituary writer, and we talk about pop culture a lot. She said that we should all go out to lunch and talk about movies. No, we're going to have yeah, Ma- so. Maureen O'Donnell. Uh, by the way, you can listen to the Maureen O'Donnell download, uh, on the Ben Jarowski show and, uh, Maureen She's O'Donnell, great. we're going to bring her in. We're going to do a movies thing. We had a, a three guys in a room the other day talking obsessively about Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, we were talking about Quentin Tarantino after I talked about it with you and we are just Yeah, you both off. of you read articles. You don't see the movies. This is one of my pet peeves. <laughs> no, no, we don't. I read an article, but go see the movie, yeah. Maureen no, O'Donnell. Don't I'm read. To you. Well, don't she, read. <laughs> she told me there's a show called Dairy Girls, which is a British series, and it's kind of based on the lives of these young teenagers. I believe they're teenagers, and they're, it's um, D-E-R-R-Y, oh, Dairy okay, Girls. that dairy guy. And uh, it, it's on these coming, it's a coming of age or show about teenage girls in Northern Ireland okay. in the 1990s. And she said, you know, while all this conflict is going on, they're trying to live their lives. And it's only like, she said, so season two, I saw that I was telling Maureen Donald, I'm like, I just saw on Twitter that Dairy Girls was trending. Apparently it's become like the sleeper hit. She's told me to watch it. She said, you'll love it. Cause we give each other recommendations all the time and, and we watch the same thing. So 
Uh, wow. She likes she, she she saw always be my maybe. Oh, After yeah, I, I told her to movie, watch it, yeah. and she goes, "Oh, thanks so much for telling me because I loved it." So, flick. so we tell we give each other recommendations. Mm. So that's going to be my next one after my next next Netflix series, and I'm and I'm I'm also watching Southside, which I started. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I want to see Southside too. All right, and uh, I will watch The Farewell. Leah uh, gave it uh, two thumbs way up. Good. I watch that this weekend, and your uh, assignment Once is to watch Once Hollywood. Upon a Time in Hollywood. And when we convene uh, next uh, Friday, you can. See savage it as a <laughs> you may like it who knows you may like it and uh, the character that uh ben knows uh plays wild her, her name's courtney sauls yeah courtney sauls god bless you courtney and uh a good friend of my uh oldest Dear daughter uh and a great actress courtney it's going to be a superstar one day and we'll all say we knew her um all right very good ramana thanks so much have a great weekend i got jim coogan ace attorney sitting on, on deck we're going to bring him on talk about trump Legal laws, all kinds of lawsuits against Trump, Mueller. I'm going to ask him about the California. Get ready to talk about this, Coogan. California, they're trying to force Trump to uh, release his taxes. Can they get away with it? We'll be right back with Jim Coogan. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Because what does that mean in the context of frozen that means pizza? This would be unpopular like, with this no, crowd. He, they think frozen pizza is a food group <laughs> here. Okay. But do you think yeah. it should be allowed in school lunches? Uh, it is. It is. I'm not sure what the status of it is right now. If this was about how it was counted, like well, was it you, counted as a vegetable? No, I didn't think that frozen pizza with with tomato sauce on it. I do not believe should be counted as a vegetable. Let me make that clear. But no, could I, I, I talk get it. about. But should it be in lunches? 
It, I, I, I think that it is sometimes in lunches. I'm not, I'm just, I want to know what but the USDA says, as long as you have other things with it, right? As long as you have real vegetables with it, and as long as you have other things with it. Hey, our friends and co-hosts at the Chicago Sun-Times are offering you, yeah, you, the listener, an exclusive deal on unlimited digital access to all of the stories that you love. Unlock every feature, video, and podcast, just like the Ben Jarofsky Show, by signing up now, N-O-W now, for a digital subscription. For a limited time only, you can lock in our lowest rate yet, only $29.99 for a full year of all the news that you need to know. Stay up to date on breaking stories, get the deep dives and investigations from the Sun-Times reporters, cheer for the best sports team in the city, and go deep inside City Hall with best-in-class political reporting. $29.99 for a full year of unlimited access, people. Believe me, you cannot do better than that. Take advantage of this exclusive deal now at suntimes.com forward slash Ben. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, August 2nd is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions once again for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace, not Aerosmith Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and bringing back our program and, of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor Hour number two. Let's go. It is Friday, August 2nd, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan returns, and it's the Ben Jarofsky Show debut of Teacher and Lita Buchanan. And now your host, he is just going to dart out of this studio immediately and head to Lollapalooza, <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yes, indeed. Ace Attorney Jim Coogan is in the studio. Got a whole list of things to talk about, including that California case. I'm really curious what Jim Coogan's thing about that, or the California law, I should say, uh, trying to force Trump to give up his taxes if he wants to run on, in California. Uh, so before we turn it over to Jim, you got an update for me, D? Absolutely, I do. Before we unpack all of Trump's legals, legal woes with Jim Coogan, we do have some updates. First off, right now, posted on both Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook and Twitter pages and at ChicagoReader.com. By the way, our Twitter and Facebook handle at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. It's the latest Chicago Reader column from our very own Ben Jarofsky. The article is titled, See No Evil. Ben, what will our listeners learn when reading your latest Oh, this book? is my, yeah, I, well, this is, I talk about this on the show uh, all the time. And uh, this, this is actually Jim Coogan, maybe way in on this one, I don't know. But uh, the story broke last week. The Senate uh, Intelligence Committee came out with a report uh, that uh, was citing Russian invasion uh, into the election process in the United States. And it said it casually at the top of the article. It was in the New York Times. Actually, the Tribune had a similar thing. Uh, it's said just almost in passing uh well uh the the russians invaded uh, successfully hacked into the uh, uh election computers at the, with the board of elections the computers at the board of elections in the state of illinois uh, this is widely known or this is well known and i reading this article going 
What? Huh? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, huh, what page is that? Yeah, I'm. I didn't know about it, and uh, so then I just started reading, and it very little reporting on it. Uh, give the Tribune credit. They did a couple articles about it. Uh, and there was a 60-minute segment. 60 Minutes did a segment on it in the summer of 2018. I happened to be out of town on vacation when they ran. Uh, but there's been no investigation in the state of Illinois There's uh, about this. There's been uh, no hearings on this as far as I know. Uh, it occurred in 2016 around the same time that the uh, um, the, uh, the Russians were hacking into Democratic computers to steal their emails. And at the same time, they were hacking it. They hacked in successfully to the Board of Election computers here in the state of Illinois. And they didn't really do anything, Jim Coogan, with the information uh, that they were able to, to gather. And, but it was almost as though they were leaving a calling card, like, we were here, we can come back, and maybe we will come back at a later time. And so uh, what I talk about in the article is I think that uh, there's two reasons why not enough attention, not a lot of attention is uh, been brought on this. The one, the obvious one, Republicans don't want to pr- draw any attention to the inf- interference that the Russians have had uh, in our system because they think it will delegitimize the election of Donald Trump. And it will delegitimize the election of Donald Trump. It didn't even have a majority of votes one more time, people. And uh, so, the fa- so the fact that Russians were clearly acting on Trump's behalf uh, if you draw attention to their interference, will draw attention to the fact that they were partisan. Putin was uh, rooting for Trump, was working for Trump against Hillary Clinton. And the second reason is that the Democrats have largely dropped the ball, in my humble opinion, is that... Um, uh, uh, Democrats of the Bernie uh, Sanders persuasion, and I love them dearly, uh, don't want to draw attention to this because they think it will uh, diminish, uh, distract from their pet theory, which is that Hillary Clinton lost the election, not because of Russian interference, but because she wasn't uh she wasn't uh, supporting forcefully enough democratic values or she ran a lousy campaign or she didn't call for national health care. And uh, so they get upset when, when I talk about uh, the Russian interference in the election, Jim Coogan. So for both, you bring these things together and nobody's paying attention to the fact that there was a hacking in 20. Did you know, Jim, that, that the, the Russians hacked into the Illinois state uh, election computers? You know, I do remember independent of the, the stuff that you're talking about coming out last week, I do remember that there was at least a passing mention of Illinois being one of the states that had been targeted, but there's never been a very clear, um, I don't know, public airing of any of the things that have happened. I mean, the state of, put Illinois aside for just a second and I'll come back to it, but in the state of Florida, it's like demonstrable that a, a tremendous amount of interference was or either information stolen or possibly nobody knows because nobody's actually answered the question and it has not been investigated or at least publicly released, whatever that investigation might show. What do they actually do? And, you know, Florida has probably a hundred and something counties like Illinois got what, 101 counties or Mm -hmm. something like that. It's one of the strange things. It's actually like a, actually sort of a, a, a fire break for American election systems, the fact that it's so fragmented and yeah. the information systems are fragmented. I mean, people who are of the technological persuasion think it's completely backwards. And and then you have to explain to them that there's an involvement between federal and state and that states run their own elections locally. But that information then, you know, becomes part of federal offices for Congress and Senate and for the president. But uh, I mean, 
were votes changed? I've heard people rhetorically ask that question. Well, and nobody really knows the answer, or at least it hasn't been directly stated. Well, let's put it this way: there's no evidence that votes were changed, and so uh, then the Republicans immediately say, "Well, then they would just dismiss everything," you know. And, and, and like I said, uh, real lefty Democrats just dismiss everything. Don't. Uh, in fact, we were just talked about Tulsi Gabbard. One of the other things we, we just—I'm not going to go back and relitigate Tulsi Gabbard. But one of the things she said, she issued a statement saying too much attention has been play, paid to Mueller, and I'm glad that the Mueller report is not going to indict uh, the president, so we can uh, move on. We won't have a civil war. So. Uh, like, yeah, to answer your question, nobody's established that a vote uh, has been switched or altered, uh, but it's kind of frightening. But I feel like that information is so opaque that the anybody who would want to know the answer probably doesn't have access to the underlying yes. information. Yeah. Uh, and people for whom it is self-serving and convenient for the answer not to be out there are the ones who are in control of it, particularly in Florida. Yeah. So you're just not going to know. I mean, you're... And it sounds like kind of criticism, indictment of the indifference or the, I don't know, passing, the indifference taking, is a great taking word, the yeah. convenience of the fact that it may be. I mean, it's not just that they want to worry about the illegitimate, the legitimacy of Trump's election in the first place. It's also clearly a calculation that any future interference would redound to the benefit of Republican candidates in 2020. Yeah, I guess it's pleasantly surprising that it doesn't appear that anything happened in 2018. I mean, we certainly didn't hear nearly as much about it. Maybe local congressional, I mean, federal congressional, but in local districts wasn't as something as easy to process for Russian intelligence or, you know, so it just wasn't as as straightforward for them to know who they were going to back or how to do it. Um, But here we are and nothing's been happening. And, and you, you know, there's all this public pressure being put on, Mitch McConnell and and yeah, the Senate the, to to do something, but all these bills have died yeah. when they get to the Senate. Uh, you mean uh, Moscow, Mitch? That's, that, that's yeah. I, it, yeah. I, it was remarkable to see that that hurt his feelings. Yes, that hurt his feelings. I mean, you know, come out and, instead of being dismissive about it, come out and say why you're not interested in it. Not just this doesn't matter. This is a waste of the people's time. They're not passing any other bills. It's not like he's busy. Yeah. Uh, you know, so explain why you think that the election security is so substantial and why these specific measures that have been proposed simply would either wouldn't be good enough or, you know, wouldn't actually address the problem. But I haven't heard any substantive explanations for why they no there aren't and you can't believe anything that mitch mcconnell says on the issue of why he has buried legislation that would fortify uh it would give funding uh to our efforts uh, to block russian interference into our system and the only conclusion i can draw is that the russians are acting on behalf of donald trump so it's all good as far as they're concerned that's my personal belief i'm throwing it's cyber warfare Yes, it is. It's not. This is an act of war interfering with somebody else's election process. I don't understand why it's not being just clearly stated that way. Uh, But I guess that's because the intelligence and military apparatus in this country is presently run by an administration that either knows that they benefited from it or is confident enough that they don't want to bring up or cause any waves at this point. Yeah, they they know that they've been they benefited from it and they're anticipating that they will benefit benefit from it uh, in the 2020 election. Uh, I mean, I don't know what other conclusion you can draw when you see uh, Dan Coach just gets uh, forced out as the national intelligence director because he was one of the few Trump uh, aides who was willing to criticize the president or willing to uh, to, uh, to take 
to disagree with the president on this issue. Well, so. and I don't know if you, this happened very recently. I think that today they've actually withdrawn Representative Ratcliffe's name. Oh no! I meant, whoa! Which, breaking the only, news. The only thing I'm the only th- I always hesitate when something like this happens because it either means that something else is going to happen or they'll come up with someone even worse. So I, n- I never get too excited when a, a t- like a terrible Trump nominee. Yeah gets withdrawn you go back far enough into the past when andy pudster's name was taken off for her secretary of labor and what do we end up with alice acosta so it's not like these aren't really victories but it's better not to have ratcliffe in that position well actually it's funny you know you say acosta what i don't want to go on this tangent but acosta uh, was forced out uh by virtue of his uh role have we even talked about epstein forced out i thought he just voluntarily well he was like okay yes he had that bizarre press conference when trump shoved him in front of the microphones fair enough uh but he's been replaced by Scalia's son. Uh, I think his name is Eugene Scalia. He's a lawyer. And he uh, he's more extreme than Acosta on uh, labor issues. So it's probably a step back uh, for the labor movement. The scary anyway. ones are where the person is more extreme, but of a lower profile. Yes. And then you don't really, or, you know, in this half dozen serious substantive agencies that are being run by acting directors yeah. right now whose profiles are quieter but just as destructive yeah epa would be a great example yes of that. uh all right now let's move to california i'm fascinated by this story uh broke uh, i think this this week uh, the state of california uh passed a law and it was signed by governor newsom that would force any candidate who wants to get on the primary uh, in the state of California to release his or her taxes for like I think five years, Jim, I want to say. Five years. Uh, and that it would affect one a president, Donald John Trump, who's always refused to release his taxes. And uh, so if he wants to get on the primary in California, if he wants to get on the ballot in California, he has to abide by this law. Of course, there'll be a, uh, a countersuit. So what's your thoughts about, first of all, uh, is the law constitutional in your humble opinion? Uh, so there are the, the two ways to look at that. There are some constitutional scholars who have said that, that it is primarily on the basis that states have a tremendous amount of control over how elections are carried out in those states. And more importantly, this is a primary process. So it is distinct from the actual federal election. And apparently that was one of the rationale in, in one of the rationales that the legislators came up with in writing the law this way was to at least propose that this is a bit of a compromise, not to pre- prevent whoever, whichever party's nominee actually is, we're not getting in the way of that. But we're saying that if you want these electoral votes, you're going to have to abide by our rules in this state. It's an interesting theory that actually might help them constitutionally, because clearly that's one of the things they're worried about. Uh, Trump spokesperson already promised that they would sue over this. Uh, talked about how it's a violation of the First Amendment's um, uh, association clause. And, uh, you know, I mean, what do I think? I, I think that it, this actually could get held. This could be upheld just because of it's a primary. It's that state's primary. I mean, it's it's equally applying to all candidates. So I think they'd have a difficult time showing that this was actually unconstitutional. It's not precluding someone from being the Republican candidate for president in the state of California. I think as you were teeing this up earlier, you uh, said he might, Trump might just punt. I mean, if he, if they can't get it off constitutionally, does he doesn't need the votes. It's yeah. not like he's going to, he won't get the primary nomination. Um, interestingly, as I don't know if you saw this aspect of it, but they had passed a similar law last year before Gavin Newsom became governor, or it might have actually been in 2017, 
Jerry Brown actually vetoed it. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, his, his veto message did bring up some important considerations. That being, well, what other kinds of things might be prerequisites in the future? This could open the door to our health records. Gonna This was his statement. Would health records or I think, uh, I don't know, some other kind of thing that the, the personal records and business records, what else would be uh, required of someone? And you can imagine that if in the future, some at some point, we're not facing the same sort of, you know, constitutional threat that Donald Tr- Trump presents, that a party might abuse this in California or wherever else, if, it, if it's constitutional there, other states could do the same thing. Several of them are considering it. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be used as more of a way to keep a lot of kinds of diff- uh, different kinds of people off the ballot. So I think there's definitely a, sometimes slippery slope arguments are not used All right, let with me intellectual just, honesty, but I think there is probably some something to that. I'm just going to make an observation uh, that Jerry Brown's slippery slope argument which uh, I'm not gonna, just going to dismiss. I'm going to, uh, he has a good point, but I'll say this. That's the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. It is a tactical move, clearly, by the Democrats to force Donald Trump to do something, to make a choice he doesn't want to have to make. Release his taxes or uh, not have his name on the ballot in California. All right? And it's a tactical move. It's a hard political tactical move republicans would do it in a heartbeat <laughs> democrats no, dip the principle the slippery slope i mean when is a democrat ever gonna fight like a republican jim you know I, what i'm saying i mean i'm not saying that it is, it, ultimately i think it is a good idea in this climate because this isn't this isn't it's not overstated this that this is a unique threat that these are perilous yeah. times for all the reasons, I mean, look, you know, it, every dismissal of the tax returns thing, oh, this was already litigated in 2016, which of course it wasn't. He lost the popular vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what difference would it make? It'd make a lot of difference because under the circumstances, there is the appearance of all sorts of conflicts of interest. And the primary selling point for this guy from the start was that he's got this great business acumen yes. and he's a tremendously <laughs> successful business person. And the problem, yeah. you know, unfortunately in our reality TV world is that's exactly what was portrayed that he is a successful business person, regardless of every other fact that everybody actually has access to says the opposite. Yeah. Other than like, he does own a couple of golf courses that are not presently out of business. Everything else, you know about him, all the bankruptcies, all the tax return records that came out, four months ago that showed the billion dollars that he lost over a few years there. I mean, every other thing shows that he's not a successful business person. And then his actual policies like today where he's or yesterday when he's escalating a trade war, that's only going to cost more farmers, their livelihoods or, you know, hashtag socialism. They're going to bail out the farmers. Like, how is that not socialism? They're going to scream and yell about every possible democratic proposal is socialism. You know, putting guys out of business, but then handing him a government check. That's, some other kind of socialism, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, so th- completely failed economic policies. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm i with you 100% there, but uh, just that uh, Jerry Brown raising the slippery slope, uh, very nice to him, very principled, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm waiting for the Republicans to take a principled stand on something, and that brings me to the next uh, uh, item on our agenda, the Michigan uh, redistricting catch court suit filed by uh, our good friends, Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin. You ask, why is Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, getting involved in something that's going down in the state of Michigan? Good question. Uh, 
and it's because he is a Republican operative, unlike Jerry Brown, who takes principled stands. This guy is just a Republican operative, and they're once again using the First Amendment, uh, Jim, as a weapon. We've talked about this many times in this show, the, the uh, weaponization of the First Amendment. Talk about what's going down in Michigan with the uh, redistricting case. Well, I believe it was ballot measure two or referendum two or something like that. Michigan passed uh, with a enormous margin. It was highly, highly approved in the 2018 election in the state of Michigan, a measure that would take the redistricting, which for everybody, just as a reminder, the state draws the boundaries for the federal house members districts. This is an extraordinary power that the state has, whether it's Michigan, Illinois, California, wherever. Every 10 years after a census. Based on the censuses, which is another big issue that's come up that we, I think, recently talked about. Um, the, the ability to draw those maps can tr- have a tremendous influence over who gets elected. And if you don't think that's true, you're just being naive. I mean, we just had a, a very disappointing Supreme Court case that said that redistricting on the basis of political party affiliation actually is not unconstitutional, which now that that would be a big tangent. But I fully disagree with the majority in that in that opinion. But looking at what they did in Michigan, they actually tried to think of this. I mean, Instead of taking advantage of the fact that there's now a Democratic governor there and the opportunity that they could flip the script and rewrite the boundaries in a way that would help Democrats instead of helping Republicans, which the boundaries were extremely beneficial to Republicans in Michigan up until this time, um, they actually decided we're going to take this away from everybody and not make it political. So we're going to have a commission. I mean, it'll still be political to some degree, but it'll be a commission. It'll be uh in theory, relatively neutral or at least one degree removed from naked politics. So losing the opportunity to gerrymander the districts, uh, Scott Walker is jumping in and and inserting himself into this by filing a federal lawsuit to say that that's depriving people of their freedom of association and, and their ability to define. I mean, it's I don't even really understand what it's says on its face it doesn't really make a lot of sense um yeah it doesn't make any sense you know not not just the fact that these voters actually approved of this in a ballot measure just seven eight months ago well i think in particular there's language there's oversight language that says members of the commission uh, cannot have been like a lobbyist or cannot have uh, just uh, recently run for office or something. In other words, they're trying, the law is set up in a way uh, to sort of protect what the, uh, the, the nonpartisanship of yeah, this the commission, of the integrity it. of it. Sure. Yeah. And so what um, uh, Walker is arguing that, that, uh, that uh, deprives a Republican, let's say it's a Republican political, let's say Karl Rove wants to sit on that commission and Scott Walker is saying that Karl Rove, one of the most partisan Republican operatives in the world, has a First Amendment right to sit on that commission. You cannot prohibit Karl Rove from sitting on that commission and so that the whole law is unconstitutional Mm -hmm. and he wants to strike it down. Mm -hmm. It's the most nonsensical (laughs) argument I've ever uh, heard if it goes to the Supreme, well, first of all, they could obviously drag it out forever, right? Unless uh, uh, 
by litigating, you take it all the way to the Supremes. It'll keep the commission from acting for a while. So strategically, hey, Jerry Brown, are you listening to this? The strategic aspect uh, it would have an implication on there. My hope would be that it that these this commission would still have the power to redraw those lines if there was litigation pending, because presently it's the law in Michigan. Mm. So I don't think it would work in that regard. But at the same time, you're still going to require, it's going to take resources from the state of Michigan to defend the law whether that's a big deal or not, it's not the largest consideration. And it certainly creates uncertainty. I mean, you could have, as a bad phrase, certainly creates uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> you could have uh, lines that are drawn in 2021 following the, uh, the census results and the uh, elections and then have them redrawn afterwards because the Supreme Court says that that commission was invalid and didn't have the power to do it in the first place. You know, besides that, I think they're just kind of throwing anything out there. With given the green light by the Supreme Court that you can gerrymander for any reason up to basically racial divisions and disenfranchising people, uh, they're just going to go for it everywhere because the money's there. I'm sure this is paid for by the Cokes, like everything else in Scott Walker's political career, and um, might not take a shot at it. Because they certainly would like to. Here's another chilling effect argument. They would like to create the impression that if you want to have these independent commissions, we're going to come after you and and cause all kinds of problems and make your state look incompetent by criticizing whether you could even do this in the first place. Except I guarantee you, this is how slick the Republicans are. Jerry Brown, I hope you're listening. You play by the principal rules. They don't play by the rules. Jerry Brown is suddenly the the target of all your ire today. (laughs) Jerry Brown, Mr. Principal, slippery slope. Uh, Illinois. There's a movement right now in the state of Illinois to have a bipartisan uh, commission uh, draw up the maps, all right? And it's sort of like eating your vegetables type thing. Oh, this is good for democracy. We should all be for it. I guarantee you, now the Democrats, the alternative in Illinois is that Michael Madigan draws the maps. So old boy Scott Walker will not file a suit on the issues of First Amendment protection uh, in Illinois because in Illinois, it would take the map-making power away from a Democrat. In Michigan, it would take the map-making power away from a Republican. It's all strategy and tactics. It's got nothing to do with a principle. That's why I oppose, by the way, the fair map initiative in illinois mm-hmm. do you understand what i'm saying it's mm-hmm. like okay when i see michigan go for it then right. i'll go for illinois i'll right. uh, talk a little bit about the supreme court redistricting case we should not let that one pass that was a bizarre ruling well i mean i don't know if it was bizarre i think it was just partisan yeah. i mean you know the 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 redistricting that was done that was the subject of the case was demonstrably for political purposes you know, cracking and packing or the phrases that they use. Uh, and there's great illustrations on this online about this kind of thing for somebody listening who wants to understand what we're talking about. You can have a state where there's 53%, uh, maybe even 55%, uh, let's say Democrats in this situation, 44% Republicans draw the maps in such a way that out of, let's just say 12 districts, nine of them go to Republicans, even with those numbers, which on its face sounds completely preposterous. Like how could that even be a thing? But if you draw the if you draw them the right way, and there's 800, 900,000 people in each district, you can intersect, divide groups, put a bunch of pe- put you know put 800,000 Democratic voters in one little uh, little bubble there, and then they just get one representative. Whereas if you spread those people out to two or three, you might end up having close elections, 
even if they're not guaranteed one way or the other. Yeah. So you have states, you know, southern states where it's you know forty something percent of the state would normally vote Democrat, but Democratic. But out of the nine representatives that go to Washington, two are Democrats. Or in North Carolina, where I think it is actually three out of fifteen, <laughs> despite the fact that the state's almost a fifty-fifty split. Yeah, three out of fifteen. Yeah, I think it's that. Yeah. So I mean, that's what's at stake, and that's what they were deciding on in that case. And yet, despite the fact that you that there are the principles of one person, one vote, that there's that you should not be able to draw lines in a way that disenfranchises people. They found a way to, I I don't know, not intellectually, honestly say that that's okay because uh, it still was was a fair enough map and there's no actual constitutional principle that was violated. It didn't violate the Voting Rights Act. It didn't violate anything else. Um, And so here we go. There's a five to four majority saying that something that was surgically drawn just to to, to disenfranchise people. It's fine. And five to four, again, it was a five uh, conservatives, Republican appointed judges versus four, quote unquote, liberal, Democratic appointed judges. Uh, and so, again, you have to ask yourself, was that a principled stand or was it a political stand? Was it a principle ruling? Did they feel that there was a greater principle that was being violated or was it a very tactical practical political decision that was intended uh, to abet Republicans and keep them in majority, even in states where at best they're 50-50. I mean, you know, just looking at this country demographically, minority rule is, is empowering one of two parties. Yeah. So if you give them a disproportionate number of congressional seats in a state where they would otherwise have maybe half uh, it's it, in very rare circumstances is that going to benefit Democrats. So I think that if you were going to look at this as purely a political decision by those justices, uh, that's the side that they'd fall on, yeah. allowing this kind of politically motivated gerrymandering. Uh, Jim, you you raised attention to something uh, that I hadn't been following, and talk about it, uh, uh, the the matter in Arizona uh, having to do with the transfer of assets uh, and uh, the Sackler family and the opioid opioid industry. This is a fascinating little story that I hadn't been following until you sent me the article. I appreciate you sending it to me. Uh, talk about this this case. Well, this it, is the law. as some listeners probably know, there ha- there's a tremendous amount of litigation nationwide right now aimed at this scourge of uh, opioid overprescription addiction, which develops into heroin addiction, which develops into, you know, crimes and suicides and overdoses and everything else. I mean, the, the social costs and the financial costs of this country for the last 10, 12 years of selling this stuff is just, it's hard to even quantify. Yeah. But so there's a, there's several lawsuits are right now uh, venued in, in Ohio. There's a judge that's consolidated a bunch of cases there. And several states are going after individual companies like Johnson and Johnson, in this case, Purdue Pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you go and read some of the underlying documents, some of the proof of how devious the marketing efforts were by companies like Purdue, it's genuinely sickening. I mean, they, they knew who they were targeting. They knew how to target them. They incentivized doctors to prescribe this stuff. They knew that addictions would develop. Yet the marketing, of course, they emphasized just how unlikely it was to become addicted to this stuff. So in any event, as a consequence, much like the tobacco lawsuits in the 1990s, you've got different localities, counties, states, cities that are finally coming back and saying, wait a minute, we're losing, we've been spending God knows how much uh, public 
uh, health money on trying to treat these things, policing efforts, people who were in jail over it, and all of this was foreseeable, and all of this was part of a marketing strategy, and all of this was purely done for profit. So in this case, the state of Arizona trying to leapfrog and maybe kind of move themselves uh, faster because the litigation process is always a slow, deliberate process, which definitely benefits the people being sued. Mm. But, you know, there are civil rights and, and you've got the right to due process in this country. And our, I don't think our legal system would be more effective by removing those rights. But some people way, have more due process well, rights than others, some, but that's a yes, whole other story. It's definitely adva- advantageous if you've got a checkbook yeah. uh, and you can hire good lawyers. So the state of Arizona is trying to fast forward that a little bit and they're taking advantage of something people generally don't think about, I think. Um, if you file a federal lawsuit, you're going to district court. The, ca- the cases start at the bottom and they move up the chain. Yeah. So when you hear about Supreme Court cases, that's because it's an appeal and then another appeal. However, the Supreme Court does have what they call original jurisdiction. Cases that the Supreme Court can hear at the outset of the litigation. Usually it's something where Wisconsin and Illinois are fighting over water rights. Mm-hmm. So the two states suing each other, where else could you have that case? You can't have it in federal court in Wisconsin or Illinois because either one would feel like the other is biased. Yes. So those are in the Constitution. It says that the Supreme Court can hear those cases. They can also hear cases where in this situation, it's the whole state of Arizona that's suing Purdue Pharmaceutical. Um, and apparently there was a recent dissent in a case where, so the question is, does the Supreme Court always have to take these cases? Or do they have discretion to say, we don't want that particular case? Justice Thomas, apparently of all people, had recently written a dissent in a case saying, we actually shouldn't be have any discretion over these. The fact that we have original jurisdiction means if these cases get heard, we have to hear them. So that's what the uh, Attorney General for the state of Arizona is trying to take advantage of. He's using that in his brief saying, you know, some of your justices actually agree with me that we should be able to go straight to the Supreme Court and have you guys hear the case instead of, however, 10, 12 years that it might take to get from district court all the way to the Supreme Court. And here's the important reason why. They're suing to stop the Sackler family from taking money out of their own company. That is correct. That's what this is about, the, Unifo- the Uniform Fraudulent Transfers Act. So it's a, it's a for all the money that's flowed through that company for the last 20 years, it's very closely held by individual members of this family and a couple other assorted people. They've taken like $4 billion out of their own company. Now, this is normally fine. You know, you're the owner of a company. You make a profit. You can distribute to yourself. However, when you're faced with whatever, a dozen, two dozen, a hundred lawsuits nationwide, and you know that, well, gee, somewhere down the road, we might lose a couple of these. Um, Maybe we should take some money out of the company right now before it's too late. There's a judgment against us. Well, there's laws against that kind of thing when it's foreseeable that you will have some kind of big judgment for the obvious reason that you shouldn't be able to bankrupt your own company before somebody gets a judgment against you. No, I, I re- it's a similar thing. I remember with Bernie Madoff. I don't know if you follow that that case. I follow, I mean, uh, the situation with Bernie Madoff with could like money that he put in his wife's bank account could that be uh, mm-hmm. taken by people who've been ripped off by uh, Bernie Madoff? Yeah, because then you get into clawback issues where they can actually go back and take money back from, yeah. the, which even included some of the people who took money out you know, who had been otherwise would have been swindled if they stayed longer. But so that's the urgency of it for Arizona. They're trying to also make the case that they need it now and they need to stop them now because the money can be lost, dissipated, sent to the Caribbean, you know, whatever. Um, (laughs) So it's, it's, I think it's a pretty legitimate claim to make. And I have, you know, zero sympathy for, for the Sacklers based on the stuff that I've seen 
that they were very acutely aware of the yeah, scourge that they were inflicting yeah. upon the American public. Yeah, I have zero sympathy for them uh, as well, but they have their due process rights. <laughs> and I'm sure uh, Jerry Brown will be advocating for their due process rights. I think uh, Jerry's on his ranch now. Yeah, no, you know, he's, he's completely retired. Right? I know. I, and I, by the way, I do like Jerry Brown. Sometime when you're here, we can talk about the 1992 uh, presidential primary in the state of Illinois where I had to choose between Jerry Brown and Bill Clinton and the decision I made. I don't know. Not proud of it. Uh, Jim Coogan, thanks so much for coming in. Dwyer Coogan, ace attorney and good friend of the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, we have uh, later um, uh, in the show, we're going to do a bonus segment uh, with Atiba Buchanan. And one day I'm going to have Jim Coogan and Atiba Buchanan on the show at the same time. Because you guys talking Mueller, impeachment, uh, and all the, just like the litigation, the, the legal aspects of um, Donald Trump's sleaziness would be a lot of fun to have you two in the studio together. Yes, and, sir. Uh, Jim Coogan, if anybody's having any legal trouble, where can people find you? Uh, just DwyerCoogan.com. That's the easiest way. And Dwyer is uh, D-W-Y-E-R. C-O-O-G-A-N. There Damn. you go. Great spelling by Jim Coogan. <laughs> All right, that's Catch Jim. him on the Ben Jarofsky Show Spelling Bee uh, <laughs> bonus interview. All right. Thank you very much, Jim. And Lita Buchanan is on deck. We're going to bring her on when we return. Today's Ben Jarofsky Show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Get to know your city on one of Chicago Architecture Center's 65 walking tours. Hear the unforgettable secrets and stories behind Chicago architecture from our expert docents. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a tour right now. Oh, wow. Look at that building. Get a special discount for Illinois residents from July 15th to August 15th. All Illinois residents get 50% off select walking tours. Visit architecture.org slash IL dash resident. By the way, between those two guys, between Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, both uh, sharp as attack, who's the better debater in your opinion? Who would have won a debate between those two cats? And yes, I just called them cats, daddy-o. Yeah. <laughs> you probably get thrown off the debate stage for that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I think, well, first of all, they're totally uh, different. Totally different. You're not going to answer this question. That's correct. Uh... If you've heard anything about me and my campaign, you've heard that someone is running for president who wants to give every American $1,000 a month. I know this may sound like a gimmick, but this is a deeply American idea from Thomas Paine to Martin Luther King to today. Let me tell you why we need to do it and how we pay for it. Why do we need to do it? We already automated away millions of manufacturing jobs, and chances are your job could be next. If you don't believe me, just ask an auto worker here in Detroit. How do we pay for it? Raise your hand in the crowd if you've seen stores closing where you live. It is not just you. Amazon is closing 30% of America's stores and malls and paying zero in taxes while doing it. We need to do the opposite of much of what we're doing right now. And the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. So let me share the math. Oh, sorry, everybody. It's all that money I've been saving lately. I have no place to store it. Yeah. Where? Why have I been saving money, you're asking? Well, because I've been going to Green Element Resale. Today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by Green Element Resale. It's a thrift shop located at 6241 North Broadway in Chicago. And people, it is badass. Furniture, appliances, lamp, books, clothes, electronics, 
Tony Preckwinkle's favorite antiques are there. <laughs> it's a thrift shop, yeah. but it's the only thrift shop in Chicago that helps bring you the Ben Jarofsky show. So if you're ever on Broadway between Granville and Devon, tell them thank you and go check out Green Element Resale, 6241 North Broadway, and find more information at Green elementresale.com and who knows if you go to green element resale maybe you'll see tony preckwinkle there buying antiques welcome back to the ben jarofsky show live from the chicago sun times mr jarofsky take us home all right very good uh and lita buchanan is in the studio with me today she's a special education teacher here in the city of chicago folks i uh spend so much of my time on this show talking about politics national politics state politics local politics a lot of national politics uh in the last uh few months definitely what people don't know for the reader for years and years and years i've been writing many articles about the way uh the city of chicago and its infinite wisdom runs its public schools uh and the fact that so much of our money is siphoned away from the things that uh we critically need now this is me talking and i'm not going to put this on you but this is me talking uh there's two problems with where we fund education uh in the city of Chicago. One problem is we don't give enough funding uh, to our schools. Uh, number two problem is the money that we do spend is often frivolously and stupidly uh, and inadequately uh, allot- allotted so that it doesn't go where it's most needed, like special education, okay? And it goes, it gets diverted for other things like Lincoln Yard TIFF. That's just me talking. And uh, so it'd be interesting to see what Alita has to say about the, the the status of special ed in the city of Chicago before I bring her on. D, you got an update for me? Absolutely, I do. And I think this uh, story is very apropos for uh, the interview we are about to have. Okay. Our poker playing friends over at Crane's Chicago <laughs> Business just put out an article we couldn't possibly disagree with more. Uh, it's involving our dear friend and vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union, one Stacy Davis Gates. This came out at about 1230 this afternoon. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and just uh, read the head line and you'll get where they're going and you'll see why we disagree the article on crane chicago business magazine which was not written by uh, the best or i'm sorry the worst poker player in all of chicago when greg hines oh, hines didn't write it no this is one ad quig oh, okay. ad quig writes or oh, the title here meet the fire brand stoking the ctu's flammable rhetoric in regards to stacy davis gates it says here union presidents past and present are better known but Uh, This behind-the-scenes player, by some accounts, is the hidden powerhouse within the teachers' union. Ben, you looked into this. Tell us your thoughts. Well, first of all, I have not read the article, so I'm going to withhold judgment on the article. I I read the headline, and I laughed out loud when I read the headline. And that headline tells you absolutely everything you need to know about the different perspectives between Crane Chicago Business and me. All right, and of course, me. I'm just one little voice. Crane's is the, the biggest business. Business magazine in the city of Chicago. So here we are, the most progressive city in the world. Who has all the power and who doesn't? But I'll say this they're turning Stacey Davis Gates into this uh, firebrand radical. I've known Stacey Davis Gates for quite a while. She's been a guest on my show uh, back when I had a radio show before I was. Uh, what happened to me on that radio show, D? I uh, forgot. I, <laughs> you were fired. I was fired for being t- too progressive for a progressive radio station. How about that, huh, Tiba? Uh, anyway, uh, so me and my big mouth got myself in trouble again. And one of the reasons I have such a big mouth, I bring on people like Stacey Davis Gates. And Stacey Davis Gates is of the, I would say, like a burn. Bernie Sanders Democrat, 
Okay. And I don't know if I can't remember if Stacy actually supported Bernie. I just, just literally cannot remember. But when she addresses issues, she comes at it like a progressive, like a real liberal Democrat. Okay. And I thought the city of Chicago was filled with real liberal Democrats. But in the world of the crane Chicago business, oh, that's scary. That's flammable <laughs> rhetoric from a radical Stacy Davis gates be scared people be very scared so i saw that headline I did not read the article for all i know the headline totally misleading d and the article is this measured uh, piece about you know how you well, know, they're so, going middle of the road it looks uh, like here based okay. on what i'm reading all right stacy davis gates be scared be very scared <laughs> okay stacy hasn't been on the show in a while she's so busy negotiating she got she got a promotion D at the CP. She's like uh, executive vice president. So now when I call her, she goes, Ben, I'm too busy to talk to you. (laughs) Wow. So my problem with Stacey Davis Gates is not that she's too radical. She's too hard to get a hold of. That's my problem with Stacey Davis. You hear Stacey? This is Ben talking. Come on back. We got to get Stacey on the show sometime soon. Uh, all We got to remind everybody, too, this Tuesday, Ben Jarofsky's having his hideout show. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, 1354 West Wabanzia. And uh, guest is Dan Weissman, the feller who does the... Young Daniel. Uh, does the ho- he's the host of the An Arm and a Leg podcast, All Things Healthcare at the Hideout on Tuesday. And be sure to check out our Benny J bonus interviews this weekend. We got a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review with a bunch of movie dorks and Ben, (laughs) also a movie dork. Uh, We got a T.B. Buchanan. He's going to be coming in after today's program. He's going to be jumping in with Samina Mustafa. They're going to be talking about uh, all things the debates and all things the 2020 election. And Monday, well, we got a few in the back burner. Me and Ben got to have a little meeting and decide which one we're going to put out for Monday. So be on the lookout. The Benny J bonus interviews. All right. Very good. And Lita Buchanan is my guest special education teacher right here in the city of Chicago. Welcome to the show, Alita. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, and uh, so, by the way, have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? So I'm, I'm not that chick. I, I don't watch movies like that. I don't remember lines from movies. Um, I don't do movie quotes or anything okay. like I that. I won't so. ask you any quotes because that's obsessively <laughs> Every guest that comes in here, have you seen this movie? A huge dork. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, at least when it comes to movies uh, and probably in life in general. Uh, so, Alita, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got into teaching. How many years have you been a teacher? This is collectively my 16th year mm-hmm. in classrooms, I like to say. I started out as a TA, um, teaching assistant, and decided that I wanted to do more, be more involved. Um, And I got my master's degree and became a teacher. So this is technically my eighth year teaching. So it's been eight years as a TA, eight years as a teacher. So I've seen both sides of the coin. But I've always been in special education classes. I was going to say, now talk about what special ed is so people know what a special ed class is. So there's a difference. Um, I've been in the suburban school system most of my career versus CPS now. So the language, the lingo is a little bit different. So I'm going to put that disclaimer out there. So in CPS, I'm considered a diverse learning teacher. Um, In the suburban school system, they usually call it special education unless the district itself or the school itself has come up with some other terminology. But basically, I say I'm jack of all trades, master of special education, meaning I'm required to go into a math classroom and have students who have academic challenges and troubles and disabilities acclimate to that classroom because we have an inclusion environment now. So there was a time where they would would pull the students out and they would separate them. 
Um, it's all about inclusion now so that the students get not only the social environment, but the academic rigor. Um, it's a huge farce that because students are in special education, they can't step up to the plate and have the same rigor as other students. Mm -hmm. That's not true. So my job is to help them acclimate. Um, I write and I also interpret. IEPs, and I'm what's considered a co-teacher. So that means there is a specialist, a content specialist in the room, and then there's me, and my specialty is reading the IEP and making sure they have their accommodations and modifications. All right, now we're going to have to break this down and some of our <laughs> listeners out from the acronyms IEP. So before we, get to, before we get to the acronym of IEP, talk about what uh, what they mean when they say a diverse learner in the city of Chicago, they don't call it special ed, they call it diverse learners. So what do no. they mean? What's the diverse, what's the range of diversity there? It's, it's actually a terminology that I like. So that's any student that has an educational plan. Okay. Your IEP or they need modifications or accommodations, meaning I physically will take their work, take a look at it, eliminate some of the questions, maybe change the wording, um, give them fewer options, things like that. So you have some, some students who learn at a maybe slower pace mm -hmm. than others or it takes them a little bit longer to process. Um, so it's my job to make sure that they're keeping up with the pace of the classroom, but also getting those extra, you know, accommodations that they need yeah. in the classroom. I definitely could have used some help like this guy had dyslexia. Back in my oh. day, they didn't even know what dyslexia was. And uh, so man i was just way before my time this is i was born too soon as they say yeah. uh now what about the, the difference and excuse my ignorance about special education but what about the difference between kids who have learning problems maybe they're learning slower than others they read slower than others they have dyslexia what have you mm -hmm. and people who are disruptive uh, oh. who you know <laughs> talk back to the teacher as my mother used to say you're fresh to the, my mother was a public school teacher for years you're fresh to the teacher what's the difference between kids who are fresh to the teachers and uh, kids with uh, learning disabilities so depending on the severity of their freshness um <laughs> they may have a document um that's called we call it a bip but it's a behavior intervention plan mm -hmm. and it will basically lay out what those students behaviors are how we are to address them um, to the letter. So I'm, it is a legal document, and I am to follow that um, to the letter. And it's nice because as a special educator, I'm with that student every day. Um, I have expertise. I have input. I actually pride myself on taking those students that have those challenges mm -hmm. and figuring out what's the root cause of the challenge. Because there, I always say there's no such thing as a bad kid. Um, and, and it's really difficult for me to hear that, you know, well, that kid's just bad and, you know, he's not, he or she is not going to be anything. And so my passion for education comes into proving people otherwise and convincing that student that that is not your narrative. Um, there's something at the root cause of your behavior and that's where I come in. Do you actually say that to the kids? I do. I do. I have very candid conversations how, how with my students. These, how old are they? I am a middle school educator, so six, I, I have them eighth. sixth, seventh, and eighth. Yeah. Back in the day, we called it junior high. Junior high, that's uh, right. <laughs> uh, so you, you'll give us an example of a conversation you'll have with like a sixth grader who's, uh, as, my, as my mom would put it, God bless her, uh, you're fresh. Uh, my mom <laughs> could handle all kinds of kids, ladies and gentlemen. She's old school. You're fresh. Yeah. Uh, don't talk back to me. But how do you, what's the kind of conversation you would have? Um, the first thing I have is a conversation with myself. And I try to remember what it was like to be their age. And they know a lot of them call me mama because I talk to them. I say, I'm, I'm your school mama. You know, I'm telling my mama, that's fine, but you're a school mama right now. It's okay. <laughs> but one of the things I tell my students is I love you on the first day of school. 
and they kind of look at me. You don't love me. You don't. I chose to love you before I got here. Um, and the reason I say that is because it requires that level of commitment Mm -hmm. um, because love itself has its own definition and its own level of commitment. I've chosen to give that to you before I've even met you. And for the average student that has behavior problems, just hearing that because they, a lot of them don't hear that. And my love is unconditional. I don't love you when you get A's and B's. I don't love you when you're behaving properly. Um, I love you unconditionally. Mm -hmm. So that is a conversation that I have with all of my students. But um, when they're cutting up, (laughs) so to speak, (laughs) um, I let them know that there's a world out there and that this is your safe place. And what I need you to do is I need you to learn and thrive and trust me in this safe place um, because the world is not going to love and protect you the way that I do or the way that the staff does um, because you're in middle school and that there is some protection and some teaching. And, and I tell them all the time, I know you don't have all the answers, you know, and as adults, we, we expect students sometimes to have all the answers and they don't, they're babies. I call them my babies. <laughs> Even my students that are in college and they come back and I, there's a couple of them that have got married and had babies. I said, well, you're still my baby. So I just, I give them that talk and let them know I'm going to love you regardless. And I'm not going to give up on you. And I'm not going to let you go. And so some of them are very resistant at first. Um, I had a very tough student this year. And by the end of the year, uh, we were very good friends. Now, uh, give me an example. Was it a he or a she, this tough student? It was a he. Oh, and how did he exhibit his uh, resistance to what you were offering? Oh, my. Um, well, it, it comes from a lot of transient um, teachers and a lot of motion within the system. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that I see. They have one too many teachers that come in and maybe they're not prepared um, to work with students in an urban setting or students with behaviors. Um, But I tell them all the time, like, I'm I'm here for you and I'm not going anywhere. And even if I'm physically not in the building, you know, I'm here for you. So he just kind of had up this this wall with everybody. Um, And he was a student who behavior entailed that he had, well, CPS calls it a SICA. <laughs> um, that's a teaching assistant is basically what it is. Um, and, and he required this one-on-one assistance because his behaviors were so sporadic um, and so uh, difficult to deal with and disruptive to the classroom. And so what I decided to do is I started to, he didn't need the academic help. Now he was very smart. Mm-hmm. It was just behavior. Yeah. And I decided to invite him into the space with the kids that needed the academic help. But for him, yes, there are conditions. You cannot do what you do in other spaces in my classroom because it is a privilege to be in here. But it is also a privilege to have you in here. So when I started to do that, I can't say that every day was perfect. Um, But a lot of the walking out of the classroom, um, swearing, he would catch himself. (laughs) He swore at you at first? Oh, yeah. Give me the initials. I just choose a letter of the alphabet. F. We'll just <laughs> and it wasn't. We'll start with F. Here's the thing: it wasn't at me. Um, it was frustration with not just the system, um, but maybe some other personal factors and Lita, that were you causing are it. Are a saint. <laughs> it wasn't with you, although it was said right no, to you. No, and and he's the student. It's funny. He's the student. You know that would give me the most grief, but would fight to the death if he thought someone was trying to hurt me. Is that right? So, yeah. Yeah. Those are the students that you have the deepest connection with because people only see the outside. No, wait, time out. Is he a sixth, seventh or eighth grader? Um, I'd rather not say. Okay. We're really protecting. 
old boy's identity. Yes. Yeah. What school you teach He at. is one of my babies. All right. um, and like I said, I just got into CPS. So I, no, I, I was just going to say, is he going to be with you next year? So I, Unfortunately, I, no. Oh. Um, that would probably be a whole other story. See. Um, you see my t-shirt that I'm wearing? Teachers. So. Teacher self-care is my jam. Ooh, okay. Um, what does that mean? There's a group of us who are what I call teachers of Instagram, and we just promote self-care for teachers. We have a tendency to, um, I don't want to say be abused. Abuse is a very difficult word, um, but I, I can't find another word for it right now. So, um, But there's a lot of what I call teacher abuse, um, and a lot of it is self-inflicted, where we feel like we have to be superheroes. And so we work tireless hours. Uh, we're up at the crack of dawn, and we're the last ones to go to bed at night, and we're not taking care of ourselves and if I don't take care of myself I have nothing to give my students so is this a group of teachers that get together and absolutely there's a conference there's yeah. a huge conference in Atlanta I had the uh, blessing to be a panelist and talk about teacher PTSD so I've been in the game a long time um, I come with a lot of I'm very a lot of passion I'll Wait, say teacher PTSD post-traumatic stress yes, disorder yes sir talk about yes, that sir. in terms of teachers um, that is a thing I actually landed myself in the emergency room twice <laughs> this year because it was a very difficult um, environment I'll just say that it was a very traumatic environment for a lot of teachers and because I'm very passionate about what I do I have a tendency to speak up <laughs> and in some environments when yeah. you speak up you get the backlash and that's in short backlash from administrators or backlash from children i will say one particular administrator uh -huh. um and when you have a team of administrators really it only takes one yeah. um to make your life miserable mm -hmm. so i experienced that um i've had tough administrators i've had administrators where we don't see eye to eye um but i have never had what i describe as almost a narcissistic um, administrator. Yeah. So that was very disheartening, very disappointing for me. And like I said, very stressful. Yeah. Um, and my stress manifests itself physically. And thank goodness for this whole movement, <laughs> this whole organization. Um, I was able to just give my testimony to other teachers and let them know when you're reaching your breaking point or when you feel like there is administrative abuse or even, you know, it, it's ironic. You would think teachers would support one another, um, but there's sometimes it's very quiet abuse amongst one another. What's um, that all about? You know, I, I really don't know. Um, I pride myself. I'm not one of those people where, um, and I, I tell my administrators that when they hire me, um, I like to work things out amongst my colleagues, myself, but there is just this dynamic, and I'm sure it's not just in teaching. I'm sure it's in a lot of different um, positions. There's a lot of what I call adult tattling, um, a lot of undermining of undermining of one another's ideas, um, positions. I often say as a special educator, I just don't think a lot of people know what I do, even within education. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's not any fault of our own. It's that we're not given the time to collaborate like we should. Yeah. And to fellowship like we should and get, get to know one another and what we do. So it's easy to critique what I do if you don't really know what I do and you haven't really seen it. So there's there's just this crazy dynamic. I will say education, as you know, um, is predominantly women. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> so I'll just say it. sit that right there before I get the backlash from that. But being a woman myself, I just I know what that environment um, can be like. And, and it can be tough. It can make or break your day. Well, I'll. I, I've said this, and it's funny, they, they hit me with the, uh, <laughs> the counter. I believe 
we're now a new mayor, so I'm talking about the old mayor. But I'm, I believe that the old mayor of the city of Chicago, a gentleman whose name is, what was his name, D? The old mayor of the city of Chicago. I forgot his name. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. God dang, I forgot his name. That's a good thing uh, for you. Uh, was his name Rahm uh, uh, something or other? I believe Rahm Emanuel made a conscious decision when he walked into the city of Chicago uh, after Michelle Obama kicked him out of the White House. And that it, when he became mayor of the city and the voters of Chicago in their infinite unwisdom elected him, that he was going to take on the teachers union and prove how tough he was to uh, Democrats uh, throughout the country because he was reading the tea leaves wrong. He thought he was going to advance his political career by beating up the teachers union. And why, you ask, in my humble opinion, did he be, pick up? decide on the teachers union because he figured they would be easy to beat because it was a bunch of women mm. okay <laughs> and he made two huge uh mistakes he underestimated the power and tenacity of one karen jennings lewis who was the president of the chicago teachers union i don't know if you were here for her uh when karen was running the show for the teachers union and he also misunder uh mis underestimated the support that teachers have in the city of Chicago, across uh, all neighborhoods, backgrounds. Uh, you know, when the teachers went on strike and defied Mayor Rahm, people would be honking their horn as they went. I don't know if you were, and then you were probably in the suburbs back then. I was, I was. But so, I can't I can't speak to the power go. Um, of the union and, and the way that they have your back. I just feel like it's, it's way different. It's vastly different from in the suburbs. Um, this is the first year that I have ever um, desired and or needed my union to support me and I have to give them a huge uh, shout out they had my back every step of the way and, and I learned a lot because like I said when you're new to CPS if if no one is there to help you along the way and help you learn the protocol and the lingo you could be completely lost but I, I just think that the Chicago union is a lot stronger than the experience well for me the experiences that I've had um, with my suburban union. Yeah, uh, and uh, anyway, I didn't mean to go on that, but uh, that tangent there. But uh, but when you said the thing about uh, the the teaching be pre predominantly women, that's why I think teachers get picked on in this country. That's why I think uh, teachers get underpaid in this country. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to see that slowly changing. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I think there is a bit of a change in attitudes uh, when I see teachers taken to the streets and they're supported. How many kids do you have to uh, are that are under your jurisdiction? Uh, oh, wow. Um, that can vary. Uh, so I have what's called a caseload. So mm -hmm. any student that is um, under my expertise is, a, is on my caseload, so to speak. And it can vary. I've had as few as five or six. Um, this past year, I've had upwards of 12 to 13. Mm. Is that the... That is a pretty big caseload. <laughs> That's a big caseload because talk about all everything you have to do for that. Um, so basically, I am responsible for... Well, in this particular school, I, I walked in in January, so their IEPs were pretty much written, but I'm responsible for updating their goals so within each and that's individualized education plan Thank i think you. you asked me about that, that acronym, acronym before yes, yes, yes. yeah so um for their iep uh they have specific academic goals and it is my responsibility to make sure that i update the goals and or take them away mm -hmm. or add on to them if necessary um i well i do have a movie reference nanny mcphee I don't see that one. <laughs> of course, of course, the one that? I referenced, he hasn't yeah. seen. Okay, so when did that come out? Oh, now see, you're you're asking me trivia. 
I don't know. I just I just know the movie exists, and and I tell the kids I'm like Nanny McPhee in 2005. She basically know that I have the internet right here. Oh. <laughs> Oh it's God the year 2019. <laughs> the year like, wow. That's so funny. I'll have to watch that one. I'm writing it down right now. Who's yes. in that one? So Nanny McPhee comes into this family's live, um, life, and the guy's like a single dad, and the kids are just atrocious, and they're all over the place, and they're giving her the business, and she's like the 50th nanny to come along in a week because they can't keep anybody. And by the end of the movie, she disappears because the kids are well-behaved, and they understand, you know, what their purpose is in the household and everything's <laughs> everything's okay and, and eventually they look up and they go where's where's nanny mcphee well she's moved on because they don't need her anymore uh, so that's the difficult part of my job yeah. um i know that a lot of my students may or may not have that experience but it is my goal mm-hmm. that they no longer uh need my services right. at the end of the year that is a good goal to have. That yeah. means that the kids have succeeded uh, and they're ready to make the next uh, transition. Uh, I I know I don't want to ask you a political question, <laughs> but it is a political talk show. So okay. I'm going to throw this one at you. And uh, you, if you want to duck and dodge it, uh, I'm going to watch you duck and dodge it. I am a Buchanan, so uh, let's yeah, see what happens. Let's we'll see, we'll see some of the ducking and dodging that goes right Of uh, all the Democratic candidates... I presume you're a Democrat. You're a teacher. I can't imagine you being for Trump. So of all the Democratic <laughs> candidates, which one do you believe right now um, it has the best to offer, the most to offer public education, teachers, kids in classrooms, et cetera? I haven't gotten much of a feel for that. And thanks to my overly political husband, um, I have been watching um, the debates. I can't say that I fully pay attention. Shame on me. Um, But I have picked up enough. I don't feel like I've gotten a feel for any of them in particular as far as education is concerned. Um, But, you know, my favorite, uh, Kamala is my favorite. Hold on. I'm going to have some more of that Kamala Kool-Aid. So, yes. Um, And the reason for that is uh, I just feel like she has an everyday uh, everyman approach to politics. And I feel like she's going to be passionate um, and she won't back down. But I I am curious to hear more um, educational questions. So either I'm at the point where. Like I said, I, I don't fully pay attention, and, and he can testify, but I, I don't feel like any of them have won me over um, as an educator. Well, I, that's an excellent qu- answer, in my humble opinion, because one of the things that I've been disappointed with, education has not been talked about in these debates, uh, and uh, it's it's such an important fact of life in this country in so many levels, uh, but you're, I, I, I share... Uh, I wouldn't know how to answer that question either because I haven't mm-hmm. heard any of these candidates talk about education. Uh, and uh, but uh, and Lita is uh, referring to the fact uh, that her husband Atibo uh, is in this room right now, and we're bringing <laughs> him on in about. We'll do a bonus feature uh, with several other uh, political experts and junkies, uh, political junkies, uh, talking about the debates and where the Democrats are at the moment. Uh, but uh, anyway, Alita, thank you so much for being uh, so kind as to step in and talk to us and talk about teaching 
amazing and i i want a t-shirt like that okay, okay. <laughs> so next time you come here you're gonna have to bring me a t-shirt just like it i have to bring you a couple of t-shirts my controversial one is uh black educators matter so that one's got me in trouble a time or two so i'm sure it'll oh bring that raise on. some raise some questions if i bring it in yeah bring that on <laughs> i'll wear that one too uh and lita buchanan thank you so much for coming on i also want to thank jim coogan from dwyer and coogan he was our guest in the two o'clock hour and marana hussein man she did a great job today uh starting things off uh talking about tulsi gabbard and other things uh leah as always you did a great job and of course the man the myth the legend behind the board from alton illinois and i know and lita you know what they call them down in alton illinois don't you Oh, no, enlighten me, please. White Lightning. That's his nickname down in, <laughs> in Alton, Illinois. No one's ever called me that in my life. <laughs> you did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of Petty Cash, Dr. D. Have a good weekend, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews like this weekend's bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com forward slash Jarofsky, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Downloaders, we live stream this program Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Find us on social media at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. And leave us a message, give us a like, follow, share, review, whatever you want to do. Remember, this Tuesday is Ben Jarofsky and Mick Dumkey's first Tuesday show, 1354 West Wabanzia, all things healthcare. And, uh, yeah, that's it. See you Tuesday.